Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls podcast, the only podcast that is not fully tokened out and is not share tight. I'm your host for this evening, Mr. Mark Teske, along with a different co-host tonight, Mr. Craig Taylor. Craig, how you doing? Oh, very good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I'm glad you could join us tonight. And, you know, let, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Where's Jake? Well, it's the elephant out of the room, right? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, Jake kindly uh, said uh, that he'd be happy for me to join you for the odd episode to buy him a bit of breathing time, uh, breathing space, rather, to get stuff done around the house, figuratively speaking. Yeah, Jake's been a little choked up with work these days and other things, and He'll be back for sure. We're going to have a few extra co-hosts along the way this spring. And, you know, I'm really excited about that. Well, hopefully uh, I'll fit in nicely. I guess we'll get to find out over the course of this episode, at least. And the beauty of it is, too, we can talk crap about him when he's not here. Wow. Is that unkind? I mean, let's talk about his minimum. No, let's, let's not go into specifics. <laughs> <laughs> so as we were preparing for this episode, I realized that even though we've had Craig on a number of times, and by the way, Craig, I got to tell you, most requested return guest. I've had a few people ring me up and just said, hey, when's Craig going to be on again? You have a phone line. You have a phone line, Mark. Well, how does that even work? How does that I, even work? Our podcast doesn't have a phone line. And I thought we started before you. I oh, see. Oh, right. <laughs> Figuratively. Okay. Well. Yeah. There's no moguls hotline. Oh, man. Man, I'm, I'm disappointed. So you, <laughs> I'm really disappointed. We could have that uh, listener call-in segment that week after week has nothing on it. That'd be awesome. Well, you know, there's, there's 18xx podcasts that have a listener call-in segment, so to speak. I, I, I'm tempted to stick it on our podcast, but I'd be worried that the listeners would be more interested in us. So uh, I've ducked that for a while. What is that other podcast you speak of, Craig? Oh, dear. That was that was a bit... That was really subtle of me, wasn't it? That's that classic right British subtlety. Yeah, just to, to invade and colonize your podcast like a Brit. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I also have another podcast I happen to be on uh, that I do with my friend Joe called The Train Rush. I try not to bring up train games too often on your podcast, Mark, because that would bore your listeners, as they already have Jake for that. And it would also bore me because it would mean I'm on two podcasts where we talk about exactly the same thing. Today, I have tried to honor the spirit of that as well. Fair enough. Yeah, that sounds like a great contrast on there. And by the way, if you have any interest in train games at all, The Train Rush is an awesome one to listen to. I, I still put out the episode you guys did on Ride the Rails as like one of the definitive analysis of a game that has a five-minute rule teach. The fact that you could find an hour and a half worth of interesting content about what's under the hood there, endlessly fascinating. I think you're probably scaring away as many potential listeners as you are pulling in. It's an odd thing, Mark, because I love long-form content, making it and the thought process behind it and really try to unpack stuff. I also realize that, you know, with short commutes or maybe just short windows to listen to stuff, an hour and a half listening to someone talk about a game can be a challenge. But there, sure. are, there are people out there who like it, and we're very grateful to them for giving us the time. It took us a while to find our feet in terms of the type of content we wanted to deliver. And just like you guys now, I think we found our stride and we know what it is we want to do. I think the latest stuff is really good. We're really proud of it. 
I would certainly agree with that. And I always look forward to a new Train Rush episode coming out. But I also happen to know that you like playing a lot of games that aren't train games. And you don't really get the opportunity to talk about those as much as you'd maybe like to. Absolutely. Yeah. Perversely, I probably play fewer train games than I do other games. I just don't talk about them as much. And let's. Let, I want to put that to rights today. I will say one thing. I'm not into lists, Mark. I did this as a courtesy to you. This is going to sound really awful. We've had requests for lists on my podcast or our podcast or whatever the correct term there is. And yeah, I'm, I'm not big on this. I think there's a big feeling for me that lists are somewhat arbitrary. Like a lot of my gaming experience is defined by who was at the table and what mood I was in going in. So when I'm asked about 18xx, for instance, and my top 18xx games, it's really hard for me to unpick the quality of the players and the mood I was in going in and what kind of week I had and how did I perform from the actual quality of the game itself. Sure. I think with this, I've done a better job, strangely trying to compare experiences that are very, very different, you know, as in, because 18xx is broadly all within a tighter design space, right? Trying to compare very different experiences made me more easily able to rank them. I still think there's a little bit of arbitrary kind of that one's above that one, but actually in the real world, it would be down to what mood I'm in and how much time I have. Well, but there's also the one common factor, whether you're playing train games or any other type of game is time. And, you know, we all have the same amount. And if you've got a block of window of time, there are certainly a pile of games which are consistently going to float their way up to the surface in your selection grid and certain ones that are not. And so even though it for sure is tough to compare A to B all the time, there definitely is a selection of games that tend to be anytime, any place games. And, you know, if you've got that block of window and somebody else says, hey, let's play this, that uh, you're always up for it. And those tend to be the games that find their way into those top lists. Well, shall we seamlessly break into methodology here and, we'll, and I'll talk to how I streamlined this a bit or is there anything else you'd like to cover in terms of housekeeping first, Mark? No, I would actually was going to break into that same thing myself. Jake and I both, when we did this last fall, uh, had very different approaches on how we actually went and created our top 20 list. And I did not give you on purpose a lot of direction on how I wanted you to do it. But I did ask you to just say, hey, we're going to talk about how you came up with your top 20 list at the start of things. So with that as an introduction, Craig, how did you arrive at this list? I did the same thing I did last time using the, as was popular then and as is still popular now, the pub meeple tool and very naively programmed it with every game I've played. I then decided that rather than waiting for the inevitable heat death of the sun <laughs> and comparing things that I can barely remember, let alone, you know, actually feel anything about, I was better off pre-trimming my list and f created a custom list on PubMeeple of stuff that I would even think to play, things that are on my shelf that I reach for, games that I have a lot of nostalgia value for, like, oh, I love that game. I remember playing that with so-and-so and just feeding those into a list. So if I didn't feel strongly about it in any way, shape or form, it didn't go in. And then I ran through that PubMeeple exercise. And that essentially narrowed down a 600-strong list down to a 50-strong list. And then I was ranking inside that 50. Sure. And that was, A, more doable. And B, I just think it led to a better quality of output, right, Mark? In the sense that when you're sitting there comparing things you can't remember for 15 minutes and then suddenly something pops up that you can remember, 
you're already mentally tired and kind of in a in the wrong place to really want to put deep thought in. Sure. When you've just done a load of chaff. So there may be some stuff I've missed, okay, just by sheer virtue of the fact that I've pre-screened what's gone into the pub meeple engine in the first place. But in reflection, looking at the list right now, I'm pretty happy that it's my top 20 or or close enough. Well, and I think every time you do this one, there is actually a little hand massaging that's required at the end. You know, something that you look at and go, I never really compared those two against each other because Pub Maple doesn't do every single combination. Like it'll do A is better than B and B is better than C, then therefore A must be better than C. But that's not always true. And so I've had to go through and hand tweak a few things and say, you know, I never really compared those two directly, but (laughs) those two are in the wrong order for sure. You say that's the inferred relationship thing. The other thing, as well, is like it kind of dialed back to that point I made earlier about ranked lists for something that's a human experience thing like this, where sometimes it's dependent on mood. You could ask me today whether I prefer, I don't know, I'm going to pick some games that aren't in here, whether I want to play Snap or Backgammon. And I'll give you answer A, and then tomorrow I say, nah, I'll give you answer B. Just because I prefer one today doesn't mean I'll prefer it tomorrow. And a lot of these things are mood dependent. Do I prefer 18xx or Age of Steam? Ooh, spoiler, it will be in this list. (laughs) Well, that'll depend on the day. And for me, at least, it also depends on how recently I played something a lot of times that I'll I'll maybe subconsciously downvote something I just played because I'm clamoring for a newer experience. Sure, exactly. So that's my methodology broadly. There's some stuff in here as well. Like I've tried to be honest about the, how likely I am to play it, that there's some stuff in here that are kind of like, oh, I love that game, but I don't get to play it enough. And sometimes I'll give that a nod instead of the thing I play more. But by and large, if I've had to compare things where you know, they're, they're next to each other, it'll be actually that's the one that I can play more or will play more rather than the aspirational, well, oh, I'd love to play that, but Lindsay, my wife, doesn't like it. Right. That that kind of naughty, oh, I'll I'll make her suffer that so and so game. You know, I I won't say the designer. I won't say designer, but they're Dutch. Uh, Uh, Fans of the podcast will know instantly who you're talking about. Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) Also, too, did you go about culling your uh, your your list by game size or type or anything like that to include or not include specific types or links of games? I considered removing the filler. I really did. The funny thing is, actually, I left the filler in because I wanted to be honest about what I'd been playing over the last year. You know, prior to the COVID stuff, uh, we we just had our first daughter and card games that I could fit in with my two friends whilst my wife was um, putting our daughter to sleep were gold and they got a lot of play. And then when my wife came downstairs and she was too tired to play a full game, we might play that play a couple of filler games instead. And I just figured it's unfair to those games, for want of a better term, to discount them. What you'll find in the list, I think it'll be interesting. We'll talk about it in the conclusion, I think. I did submit them into the algorithm. I was surprised how many stroke, how few of them actually made it through to the top 20. I think that's an excellent way of looking at it. And uh, I, I ended up ultimately doing a very similar thing where even small games that were played as part of a session, a lot of times floated up higher than I would have guessed they would have. Sure. We'll see when we hit the list. But no, I can say now, um, rather than burying the lead. I was surprised that some things that I played a ton last year, an absolute ton, and I mean every week without fail, didn't make the top 20. Because even though I had a lot of fun with them and I would always reach for them, they didn't provide an experience that was unique enough or 
memorable enough in the sense that you know it had a distinct shape that wasn't available elsewhere, convenience didn't necessarily equal quality. Give us an example. Sure. So last year, I was introduced to a few small card games by my co-host on the train rush, Joe Reese. And one of the ones I picked up after playing with him was a game called Crass Carriots. It's been renamed in the English printing by I don't know who to dealt and arguably fired by um, a Japanese publisher because you guys have played this one, I believe. Oh, heck, it is called, what's it called? Hmm. Um, I don't know. Scout? Scout. Uh, that's the one. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Many yeah, people okay. consider, that's the one. Thank you, Mark. That's the reason you're here. It's to, it's to be Ooh. intelligent um, uh, to, my, to my idiocy. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Spot on. Now, a lot of people say Scout fires it. Now, I've looked at the rules and they're not mechanically the same, but a lot of people feel, well, I would rather play Scout over Crass. That's by the by. I have Crass. Played it almost every week last year, often twice a week. I like poker hands. I like ladder type games, but it wasn't in the top 20. There's, there, there's games like that maybe in the top 20, but it, despite the fact I played that one a lot because it was new to me last year, didn't make my top 20 experiences. I can just say, my friend, you need to seek out Scout. It's fabulous. Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's an Amazon.jp import, and I tried to bundle those up, you know, a few of those at the same time due to Les shipping. No kidding. I'm, I'm still stinging from the Oink Kickstarter that just uh, hit my bank account <laughs> about a day ago. Man. Oh, yes, I, I feel the same sting. Yeah, man, that was, yeah. yeah I, <laughs> do I, don't I, clicking, uh, hovering over the do I cancel pledge thing, and I just figured, you know, do you know what, Mark? It's going to take me weeks and weeks and weeks to find these darn games if I don't just get them now. This is convenient. What price convenience? Apparently £140, that price convenience, but I digress. You're right on target with that one. I mean, if you're going to go through the effort of finding a lot of the games that they listed as add-ons, it's going to be much more difficult because a lot of those add-ons, even six months ago, were very difficult to obtain here in the US. And I put a lot of effort and time and expense into acquiring some of those now that I could just Got them as an add-on to this Kickstarter. So uh, mm. I, I hear you. You're definitely better getting them now. It's a lot easier. This is just a make the pain go away. Get it now. You, you know, you know, you Craig, you're going to end up picking it up. So it's done. <laughs> it's done. Um. Yep. Let's uh, go through and see what you actually rank as your top 20 games. Craig, you ready for this? Yeah, I am just about. I'm looking at them. And uh, number 20, it's a strange one. It's the oldest game on my list by 10 years. Uh, it is a choir designed by Sid Saxon, currently published by Hasbro, and it was originally printed in 1964. Um, please tell me you've played this, Mark, because if you haven't, you haven't had a full game in life. Oh, my friend. So a couple. <laughs> I'm going to lay some knowledge bombs on you. First off, it was originally published by 3M Games, which the headquarters of 3M are right here in the cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul. So that is a hometown game for us. Nice, nice. I, the earliest printing I've played is the Avalon Hill one, but I mean, this isn't a, this isn't a competition. It's just a, I, did, I never knew there was a 3M printing. I have one of the uh, original kind of late 60s printings of this that is in sort of a faux-looking bookshelf book. And uh, that's the one to have, actually. Everything, all the pieces are actually, you know, old, old school Bakelite and... Uh, it's really quite lovely. And this is actually the reason we're talking today. If weirdly, this is the game that got me into gaming. Crazy. That's, that's quite a coincidence. That's cool. That's a really cool, that's a really cool bridge into the podcast, isn't it? I like that. That's, that's the warm fuzzies right there. 
Yeah, no, Acquire is a game that has both extremely high nostalgia value for me, as well as I just plain love playing it. It's a fantastic game in my book, and I'd love to hear why you think it's as great as I do. It's got that wonderful feeling of accessibility in the sense that the rules are very direct. I think you could teach this to almost anyone. It's a classic family game. Yet, once you get past the superficial, this is how you operate it and play it kind of thing, there's a depth there. It's not necessarily Mariana Trench deep, but there's a, there's a watching other people jockeying for positions on majority on shares. There's a playing the odds in terms of when you're pulling tiles and what you're hoping to pull and laying down pieces, hoping not to create opportunities for others or holding back key pieces, knowing that you're preventing other people from expanding their hotel for acquisition. There's enough going on here to keep me interested for the runtime. And it's also financially based. It's money as points. And that's something that I've come to enjoy more and more over the last five years. Yes, it's the simpler side of the shares and cash game style type of thing. But it's still it's still in my wheelhouse. Do you know what? It's one of those games where luck is actually an asset in this. It's, yeah. I used to I used to think when I first got into 18xx, darn it, luck is for chumps. Perfect information games are great. I can't see me playing any games that involve luck again. Oh, I was young and naive. But having played some really, really good games that bake a bit of chance in there to lend drama or to lend emotional weight in the form of tension, yeah, this is a game that uses luck really well. And I can't think of a play of this that I've had that didn't have a lot of that tension baked into it, where there was a really tense moment of, do I buy this share? Do I buy that share? Do I buy two of these and three? You know, do I buy three of those? Do I lay this tile? There's always tough decisions in this game. And I'll also say this is a game that is completely devoid of a catch up mechanism. If you make bad mistakes and find yourself without money and no way to participate in future mergers, it's going to be a long play for you. Sure. But it's also accessible, right? In the sense that it uses luck in an accessibility sense. And by that, I mean, you can have a bad game of it due to bad luck, never pulling the tile you want. And that is another function of luck, right? It gives people, it allows to, for one better term, bridge the skill. So if you're a very skilled player and I'm an unskilled player. Levels the playing field a little bit. Exactly. It gives me, that's the, there's a term you use, Mark. Here you go. I'm going to use a Markism. It, it gives me a puncher's chance. I believe that's the term. It might be a fighter. <laughs> it might, might be a fighter's yep. chance. A puncher's chance, even if I'm not as good as you, maybe the, the tiles will land for me. And in a game of this nature, with this, you know, this level of accessibility, the runtime it has, I think it's spot on. And this is something that I have found plays out well, whether it's my serious gaming group or whether it's a light gaming group for those, all the reasons you talked about is there's something in that box for everybody. And it also, it stopped me being a snob about old designs as well. That's another reason I'm glad it's in here. You know, I'm looking at my list and there's a meta comment here. There's sometimes some of the old designs, the best designs. And I sound like such a crusty old individual here. And I'm not saying there aren't new and great games coming out, but I think you'd be perhaps churlish not to look at the back catalogue of stuff that you've never considered before if you can get access to it. Question for you, knowing that your other true love in life are train games, 
Mm-hmm. Have you ever played the train version of this game? I have not. There's a train version of this, is there? <laughs> he says, curiously, try not to tap oh. around his mechanical keyboard to disrupt Mark's podcast. Uh, it, so it's by the great Alan Moon, the designer of Ticket to Ride. Go on. And it, it predates Ticket to Ride. In fact, you look at this board and you go, well, I see where he got Ticket to Ride from. He basically took this board and made Ticket to Ride out of it, along with all the pieces. Uh, the game is called Union Pacific. It is a choir on a train board. It's probably 80% similar. You're doing the same thing. You're laying train lines to grow your routes. You are buying shares in different train companies. There's a kind of a big national company called the Union Pacific that you have to trade in shares to get. And every so often throughout the stack of cards that are played, there's uh, dividend cards in there that the, all the shares will stop and pay out dividends. And there's leader dividends paid out. In much the same way that happens with Acquire uh, mergers between the hotel chains. Craig, I, if you like Acquire and you like trains, you need to go find yourself a copy of Union Pacific. This is where we both find out that it's impossible to pick up, but um, there's BGG for that. It's so, been out of print for a very long time, and it's only printed in German. I've had my copy for going on 20 years probably at this point, or 15 years at least. But I would think, I, I think it was fairly well printed back in the day in Germany. So I don't know that you'll have that much trouble finding one. Well, um, I've got a German friend called Sven, who's in part of my 18xx group. So maybe I'll leverage his expertise to find me a copy. I'm going to be negative because this is the house signature for Craig in podcasts is to be a little bit negative. The recent versions of Acquire that you can buy right now, that you can acquire, so to speak, are horrible. <laughs> I see what oh, you did there. Indeed, I know it's you know it's great, especially when I call out the pun because the best jokes are the ones that you have to explain, right? <laughs> um, yeah, man, this is just the, the the components in the recent versions are just horrible, like just like really horrible. I mean, it's still a good game; it's still worth picking up. But if you can like find a used Avalon Hill one, just get that. The charity shop ones are probably better than the ones you can get in your board game shop. That's the hard truth. The old 3M versions can be had pretty much all day long for $25 or $30 off of eBay. And they're they're pretty numerous. So, you know, you certainly do not need to go out and buy the $60 version of it. Spend the $30, find the 3M version on eBay, and you're good to go. Yeah. I don't want to go into, I'm not going to whinge about specifics. Let's move on. Let's move on from Acquire. Number 19. Well, okay, number 19. I'm going to do something that you uh, are not going to get, but all the British listeners will. So all five of them in <laughs> in 19. Bit of bullseye for you there. Kraftwagen. Um, I, I introduced this one to you, Mark. In fact, I think, did. I think there's a gift copy of it in the Mogul's Library in the Mogul's Cave next to the Mogul's there Mobile. certainly is, yes. Um, it's designed by Matthias Kramer. And it was most recently published, I believe only published, by Stronghold Games in 2015. It is essentially Glenmore Mark II, but let's call it Mark One and a Half because there is a Glenmore Mark II. Yeah, I was um, going to say. It, uh, but it's a uh, Glenmore reskinned and adjusted with a car theme where you are essentially your car producers in Germany trying to sell cars into a market, which is defined by the players, trying to make the most victory points by the end of the game. So far, so Euro. I'm going to ask you what you thought of it, Mark, because it's actually, I don't think I've discussed this with you since I've given it to you guys, but I know you've played it at least once. 
Oh, more than once, my friend. I will say that as a direct result of you gifting us a copy of that one, Stronghold Games has sold at least half a dozen more copies of it as a direct result in our game group itself. Literally everybody we played with was on Amazon by about halfway through the game just going, this is really only $21 here? I'm buying a copy right now. It's unbelievably inexpensive here in the U.S. to acquire a copy of this. You know, it's not the most amazingly produced game as what it's typical stronghold games quality for better or for worse. But the gameplay is far exceeds the cost that you would pay for it. We loved it. It's a game that really was popular in the few months leading up to the pause of our game groups due to COVID. And the big reason for that is the fact that the number of crazy things that have happened during plays of this game are too numerous to count. So one of the big events that happens is there is a, um, you know, there's a scoring round that happens three times throughout the game, I believe. Mm-hmm. And you have to really jockey to be in the right position to score well during those scoring rounds or you get nothing. You think you're in a really good position coming up on those scoring rounds. And boy, the number of times somebody has managed to tangentially come in at one of those scoring things and knock you out of position without you even realizing it and having just strange things happen during those scoring rounds happens virtually every play. And that's such a unique facet of this game. You've described actually the one thing that I think really catches my eye with this game. It uses the core time wheel mechanism that most people will be familiar with from Patchwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, and he uses it in a more complex, obviously in a more complex game tapestry, so to speak. But it's that dynamic stuff that happens in the market. The surprising things where a car that you didn't expect to sell sells. And then what you mean the subsidized car that sells for twice as much as the print price is actually a more expensive car than I expected. What? Uh, 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 just some strange, crazy stuff happening in the market. And when that happens arbitrarily because you're all new, that's just cool. And it makes you want to come again. When the players start playing for it and positioning themselves, going, okay, you've done this. So actually, if I put this car in and close the round, we're going to have to sail now, but I'm going to get the big bucks. That one's not going to sell. That one's going to sell for more. Oh, I'll put this token on this one. So I steal that car you weren't expecting to be sold. It's just so good. It's, It's just, it used to be in my top 10. It's not anymore because train games destroyed me, but. (laughs) <laughs> it's still up there in my top 20, and I'm pleased to see it survived the pub meeple trial by combat. Yeah, we did hit this one pretty hard when we first got it. It was it was sort of all the rage there. And the other thing, too, it plays in a very desirable amount of time, both in terms of teach and gameplay, because mm. this is a uh, this is not a lengthy game. I mean, it's, you know, 60 to 90 minutes, I would say for sure. But the fact that it's only 60 to 90 minutes means that it saw an outsized amount of play. Yeah, definitely. That 75-minute box, I'm calling it 75 minutes because I think that's reliably what we could hit it in. That 75-minute slot is so, so useful, whether it's a closer at the end of the night, whether you're fitting it in before people turn up. And, you know, yeah, it's perfect. Just so, so versatile. Some people moan about the decks, the technology decks sometimes landing too well for people. Well, I never had access to the double engines or whatever. I think when you balance it out over a number of plays and you just say, well, it wasn't my game this time, but it only lasts an hour. So who cares? It's it's great. Well, and I'd also say that the time wheel with the actions that whoever is farthest back in line in the uh, the racetrack essentially gets to go through and take the next action. So you can jump forward several spaces and take the action that lets you do several things or pick that better card in advance. 
But then you essentially skip turns as other people take turns until you're the last in line again. And that, I think, is just absolute brilliance. And it does tend to balance that out somewhat. Somewhat. Not completely. Sometimes you can just be in a position where when it's your turn to act, there's always junk on that deck. Just doesn't matter what you do. The opportunity just is never there for you. But those games are outliers, and I'm not going to castigate an otherwise great game because sometimes a player gets dealt lemons the whole game. Like, it's not the typical experience. And like you say, more often than not, it's possible to mitigate it. Or it's a result of a player just not being greedy enough. Oh, actually, you know what? Hopefully, they'll leave the technology cards there. No, they won't. No, they won't. <laughs> no, they do not. So, Craftwork, and I'm glad you, I'm glad you, for the record, truly glad your group enjoyed it. Like, really glad. Yep. No, that's um, been a big hit, and uh, I, I strongly endorse this choice at number 19. Number 18 is a weird one, Mark. You know, I'm going to have to lean on you a little bit on this one, Craig, because this is something I am not, I have a complete blind eye to. So, lead me in, tell me what it is, and uh, tell me why this is so high on your list. Well, you're going to lose your sponsorship deal, Mark, from the Fancy Flight Games because it was published by them. But it's okay because they don't care anymore because they stopped publishing it. It was designed by Eric Lang. Trust me, the last people to sponsor us would be Fantasy Flight. Sure. <laughs> I don't think I hear about many of their games on your podcast, in all fairness, Mark. No, no, no. I mean, that, that, that has been home base for our gaming group for a long time at their event center. But uh, yeah, they're not really in the core of what the type of stuff we normally talk about. So uh, that's why I'm interested in hearing about this. Cool. It was designed by Eric Lang, Brad Andrews, I'm probably saying that wrong, and Nate French. It's no longer available. You have to buy it from people used, whole collections, and it's Warhammer 40,000 Conquest. I was surprised this was in here out of my lifestyle games rather than Netrunner because I played Netrunner for a lot longer. And I would argue that Netrunner is a better design but I guess when it came to the whole, would you play this over that kind of thing, this, this won the fight because I was very heavily into this. Uh, and I played on the tournament scene in the UK for a number of years up until the game closed out. I was one of the top ranked players of a certain faction in this, albeit I picked a faction that nobody played so that could happen. <laughs> Good call. Yeah, indeed, indeed. It's So it is essentially, it's a two-player adversarial territory to control game where we both play science fiction races based in the Games Workshop Warhammer 40,000 setting. And we have a sequence of fights over planets that we're looking to conquer. The planets have icons on and the first person to collect a set, I I forget the specifics, it's been so long since I've actually played a game of it, but collects a correct set of icons will win the game. Okay, The, The game kind of operates in rounds, for want of a better term, where we will have a planet that's at the front of the conquer chain and that a fight will definitely happen there soon. And there's planets further on that fights may happen at if we both have, um, if we commit leaders there and pieces like that. Here's the thing. The only planet card that's going to be taken is the one that's at the front of the conquer chain. All the ones that happen further down the line, they're just kind of setting up for future fights. So you might commit troops down the line because you know that planet is going to be the next one coming up and you want to have some troops there ready in advance. You might commit troops down the line to try and clear out troops that are going to be a problem for you later. You might put cards down on planets because they have special effects. This game was really, really deep. And although it wasn't as deep as Netrunner, 
for me, it was actually more manageable. Netrunner sort of outgrew my ability and my time to invest in a single lifestyle game. This, I was able to know my faction really well, have a general awareness of other factions, but not a complete card-by-card knowledge. And I was still able to, by and large, have a good game of it and compete. Also, it used an IP that I really love. Your Acquire would be my Warhammer 40,000. I grew up on science fiction war games. So for me, a big problem with these science fiction war games, the Warhammer 40,000 stuff, was the boxes of grey plastic that I'll never construct, never paint, and will never play with because the whole thing's gone past me. I don't have the time to chuck into that. This was a card game. If I wanted to make a, a deck, an army, for want of a better term, chucked it together and it was done in a few hours. This was attainable lifestyle gaming. How similar is this to, like, say, Blood Bowl Team Manager? Because as you were describing it, I was kind of getting a little bit of that taste from it. Uh, it's it's very, very, very similar. Very sure. similar indeed. It, it's, it's virtually identical fundamentals. Whereas you would consider Blood Bowl Team Manager a sealed box game experience. You buy expansions. I mean, heck, that's what it is. This was built on the living card game format where there was an expectation that you would buy a new booster pack every month and it would include a few cars from from multiple factions. And if you want to be competitive, you'd have to keep buying this stuff. But it wasn't a crapshoot in the same way that Magic the Gathering is and you don't know what sort of boosters, you get the same stuff. And that always appealed to me more as a player anyway. Felt more, um, what's the term, egalitarian because there's less of that kind of cash for access. Here you can buy the literally buy the best cards wins. There was a fixed cost to have the complete set. To be a tournament caliber player, you you spent three hundred, not three thousand. You got it exactly, exactly. I'm not saying it's cheap. Board gaming isn't cheap in the grand scheme of things. It's not the cheapest hobby. It's not the most expensive hobby. But living card games for me were more egalitarian than collectible card games. And if I were to be brutally honest. I love the IP. Like I used to read the Black Library novels. So this let me slosh around in that universe and look at cool art, stuff that I enjoyed. And it's not just nostalgia. There's a good game in here. If you think Blood Bowl Team Manager is a good game, this is like that, but you've got a lot more diversity of cards to play with. Sure. And uh, Jake is our resident Blood Bowl Team Manager expert. So I wonder if he's ever played this. Because um, FFG aren't interested in it much anymore, you can pick up use sets for pretty decent money. And I would say, you know what, if you and Jake were looking to do something to, for the Treehouse of Doom and share the original Radioactive Man copy, you guys could do worse than go on eBay and buy a complete set of this and have a play with it. Cool. For that kind of same niche, Codex has been the one I've sort of gravitated to, but uh, interesting idea. So shall we move on? The love letter to Warhammer 40,000 Conquest is over, folks, because let's talk about number 17. I think, I think we should talk about number 17. Number 17. The publisher always makes me laugh because they have hundreds and hundreds of games I've never heard of. And there's a lot of real gems in there. Some, I would say, are even the queens and the kings of the castle of their domain. Uh, It's published by Queen Games in 2009. Craig, what is it? It is Kansas Pacific. Now, I will be honest, okay, this is almost a placeholder for Cube Rails. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's the one that I've played and had the most positive experiences with recently. I'm not going to say it's a king of cube rails at all. It's one that a lot of people don't even highly rate, but it's one that I quite like the flow of. And for my sins, I have played it more than Chicago Express. So um, (laughs) I I figured it was more honest to put this in here than Chicago Express. So it's designed by um, someone called John Bora, 
but they printed a different name on the box due to a printing error. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> a deliberate printing error, I'm a sure. Indeed. Uh, this, the flow of this is broadly very similar to Chicago Express in the sense that you lay cubes down on the board. They've got to be contiguous to uh, the cubes the company's already placed down. And occasionally you'll hit cities and it'll bump up the revenue. And every so often there'll be dividends and the shareholders will get paid out. And you auction for shares that cash out to zero dollars at the end of the game. It's all very, very similar. Very Chicago Express, yes. Yeah, indeed. The difference is with this is there's a, a lot more control for the presidents. So the presidents can decide when a share goes up for auction. The most profitable share will automatically go up for auction at the end of the operating round, for want of a better term. But beyond that kind of share that will always go up, presidents can also choose to issue out shares for auction if they so wish, but they don't have to. So the presidents have a large degree of control over if dilution does or doesn't happen. Sure. Whereas you have no choice in whatsoever in Chicago Express. Exactly. Exactly. And with this, there's this kind of jockeying for position, kind of, I want to earn lots of money, but I don't want to earn the most money because if I earn the most money per share, then another share will be issued. And that means I won't carry on earning the most money per share. But there's a, there's a classic capitalization problem as well, where you want people to bid high for the shares if they are going to buy them because you're relying on spending the money to build a track. And there's some kooky race game conditions as well, where you're trying to build across West. And if you build across the board entirely and you manage to achieve that, then it's impossible to dilute your shares anymore. And it contributes towards the game clock, uh, some clock control stuff. I mean, there's, there's lots of classic Cubrow stuff in here. If you were to ask me about this list four years ago, say, let's even say two years ago when I started the train rush um, with Dave, I would not have had Cubrows in there. I just saw Cubrows as inferior 18xx. Why would I play this when I could play 18xx? I've really come to appreciate the decision space that Cubrows offers now. And so I'm glad to see at least one, uh, even if it is kind of just a, for a better term, a totem for all the rest featured in the list. Yeah, we've become big fans of Cube Rails for very different reasons than we like Age of Steam or 18xx because they tend to be a little bit more of a pocket experience and that it's something that they tend not to be very long, right? I mean, you can have a really vicious fisticuffs experience playing Cube Rails in 30 minutes with a bare minimum of rules explanation. You can kind of get right in and get at it. And that's a game niche we really appreciate and enjoy. They tend to be a little bit opaque sometimes. Some players can bounce off them because they can, you know, the player defined value thing and what's the right number to bid on a share. Well, I don't know. You know, we'll find out in a minute. <laughs> and, and by the way, I can lose for getting that wrong. Indeed. Yeah. Some people just don't like those sheer edges. And I'll be honest, I've played a lot of Cube Rail games that feel borderline broken or maybe just games that I just only want to play a few times. I think I enjoy exploring new Cube Rail titles as much as I do playing well-loved ones. It doesn't mean that I think all Cubrow games are great, but I think it's an interesting genre of games to explore. I just wish that they were generally more available. Thankfully, the market is corrected in that sense, and now they seem to be available almost everywhere. Well, and I know by that token, one game that I'd really like to see become more available probably won't be because of its perhaps brokenness is Chicago and Northwestern. And that's one that um, I know was considered for the Capstone Games series, 
but uh, due to some perhaps degenerate play in there, <laughs> was actually passed on. And I know there was some talk of going through and, and revisiting the rules and adjusting them to fix those kind of outlying conditions. And I hope that happens. I want it for no other reason than the fact that the Chicago and Northwestern Railway ran within two blocks of my house when I grew up as a kid. Nice. We, we don't have many <laughs> of those. We don't have many of those because Mr. Bora understandably focuses on North America for a lot of his titles, although not exclusively. We do have a few. We do have riding through East Ridings of Yorkshire or whatever it's called. I don't know. I won't get the name right. I've recently, Mark, for my sins, picked up a big haul of winsomes from a man who was looking to get rid of all his winsomes. And I'm looking forward to exploring those physically with my friends when Val, who shall not be named, ends and we all have our magic injections <laughs> to let us play games again. Uh, that will be great. It will be great, although I don't know if the cardstock will survive because they are all um, winsomes, but I digress. Great choice there. Number 16, we were talking about old games. Yeah. This is an old game. It is an old game, but it's not. my experience of it isn't that old. I've actually even pegged when I got into it from the publisher I picked. So number 16 is modern art designed by Dr. Arena Knizia. And the printing that I got hold of was by Cool Mini or Not. Just, it's the king of bidding games. That's the strap line, isn't it? It's the king of bidding games or the king of auction games. But have you played it, Mark? I'm, I'm going to lean on you here a little bit. Have you played it, Mark? What do you think of Rena Knizia? Are you a Knizia-holic like me? Yes-ish. I wouldn't say I'm a Knizia-holic. Uh, what I am is an oinkaholic. And Oink produces a very lovely copy of Modern Art. So I found my way in through the collecting the Oink version of it. Yeah, I've got that copy too, but I've kept it sealed because I'm an awful collector like that. And my Cool Mini or Not one was already out of the shrink, so that's fine. Sure. Yes, I, I have played it a number of times, and I agree whole cloth with what you said about it being you know one of the kings of auction games, if nothing else, due to the fact that this game encapsulates literally every auction mechanism that you could conceive of just about. It's really really clever. And the initial premise of it, the whole selling art and the more of it is bought, the more points it's worth, or more point, the more money it's worth, rather. It sounds ludicrous. And when you're explaining it, people go, how's this going to work? Oh, no, I don't get it. Now, how, how, what? And then when you've played a couple of rounds and you see the amount of money people are sitting on, the lights go on. You know, ah, the, the, the math behind it is sound, but it's not obvious. Weirdly, this game has become a favorite with my kids as well. Like my kids demand to play modern art. So that shows the broadness of appeal that it has for what's actually a very difficult auction game. There's levity here. I'm a big fan of levity, right? Life's too short to take everything seriously. This just allows you to be ridiculous, putting some you know intentionally horrid piece of art in front of you and trying to upsell it to your family or friends as the next best thing. And yeah, of course, you can, you can just engage with it on the box of mechanisms level and say, oh, hey, it's going to be worth blah, blah points, or maybe we can work together. But I don't think that's where most of the fun in this game is. Like, you can, you can amp the fun up to 11. We have codified that. We go full on Sotheby's auction house with this every time we play it and try to one-up each other with the most ridiculous explanations about what the artist was thinking of and what, what period he was in when he was creating this piece of art. And, you know, nine out of 10 times, it becomes some Berliner leather daddy and just talking about <laughs> nice, yeah. just the most preposterous explanations of what each piece of art means. And it's all delivered in some absurd accent and we fully ham it up. And that's become a lot of the fun of playing modern art for us. 
I think that's actually a reason to own every edition of it going, Mark, is, you know, when you get bored of oh, role-playing one sure. set of art, you get more different art, right? I I probably will end up buying this another time. It's crazy, right? I see it's crazy. I own it twice. It's so good. He owns it twice. And I can rarely <laughs> say that. So yeah, modern art. I've heard there's a Korean version out there that's especially delightful as well. Believe it or not, I skipped on that at Essen and I regret that heavily because I wish I picked it up. But I was sitting on two copies at the time and I figured I just couldn't justify a third um, in a heavy overloaded car coming back from Germany. But it's a regret I shall live with. The one thing, I'm just going to make a meta comment now before we move on actually, because I was surprised that Rina Knizia wasn't in my list more. There's some really good games I really, really enjoy, but this was the only Knizia that made the top 20. And I'm somewhat sad for that because I collect Knizias of, you know, I collect 18xx games. I collect Cube Rail games. I collect Knizias. They're the, that's kind of the scope of my board game collections because I realized in the last few years, you can't collect board games in a meaningful way. There's no. too many board games. You have to find the things that uh, strike your fancy and and just focus on those things because there are too many different things out there. There are too many different niches, but there are some meaningful things you can try going through and collecting. I I didn't personally have any Knizia's in my top 20. I can easily say what my top Knizia game is. It's actually raw. Okay, interesting. Followed pretty closely by by modern art. I mean, those two are very highly rated on my list. But yeah, my highest rated Knizia would definitely be raw. Which actually just barely missed my top 20. It was 21. <laughs> That's right. how highly I think of Ra. I'm going to have a little bit of a bonus section here. The, the Knizia I thought should be in here and isn't is it was published originally under, well, forget originally. The, the copy I picked up was called Botswana. It's now Wildlife Safari. And it's a stock speculation card game where it's you pick up animals, little plastic animals like your kid would play with when they're called like four or five and you pick them up and you play out a card in the middle. I think I might have even discussed in the podcast before, actually. I thought that would be in my top 20 for sure. If it was top 10 small card games, it would be in here. But modern art beat it out, so there you go. Pub Meeple, apparently you know me better than me. Great choice. I've never heard of Botswana, so you got me there. Uh, we'll talk about it another time. But if you want to pick a copy of it up, it's under the title Wildlife Safari, and it's now about another £10 to cover those little animals. So uh, there you go. Oh, boy. Okay, the number 15 then. Let's do number 15, because I don't want to bore people. You've definitely talked about this one on our podcast before. I know, so I'll, we'll, we'll skim for it reasonably quickly. It is Tammany Hall, designed by Doug Eckhart, and I picked up the copy published by Pandasaurus Games, originally printed in 2007. Yeah, this is probably the second nastiest game you can play. Arguably, if you think bullying is particularly nasty, if you think bullying defines nasty, this is the nastiest game in my list. Mm. You know the historical period better than me, but you essentially are trying to assert political dominion over New York in, I'm going to say, the 1800s. Late 1800s, yeah. There you go. Late 19th century, yep. I studied American studies, guys, just so you know. I got a very good grade at it. Right, I digress. Um, (laughs) And you are trying to (laughs) gerrymander districts of New York to vote for you to become the mayor of New York. It's played over the course of about an hour and a half. And the thing that makes this quite distinct is whoever is the mayor will be the person who's currently leading in terms of points lead. And they will assign roles in the council, for want of a better term, to the other players at the table. They will have no special role themselves because they are winning. They are the mayor. 
And as a virtue of being a man, they will have picked up an extra victory point or something like that in the prior scoring. However, the other people will have roles that let them move pieces around or block pieces coming in to the board, meaning that in the next phase of kind of setting up for the subsequent scoring, they'll be able to mess people up. And guess who they're likely to mess up the most unless they manage to kind of fake a position of weakness for a better term is going to be the mayor. So everybody is likely to be using their special powers on that person who's in the lead to try and drag them back into the pack. Or maybe they don't. Maybe they end up focusing on each other a bit too much and the mayor ends up just subtly going away into the distance. It's one of those games where being in the lead fills you with dread. Absolute (laughs) dread. Because you are as crabs in a bucket and you're going to be dragged back down you horrible show-off crap. <laughs> well, that's not your only game on the list that shares a common trait with, you know, it's best to be second rather than first. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm having a look up the list now and trying to think which one which one you're referencing. You'll have to yeah. you'll have to tell me in a minute. Okay, nice. Yeah, we'll it's, definitely talk about that one in a bit here. Nice, nice. Yeah. Oh, have you played it? So I know we spoke about it and I know you expressed an interest, but I also know it's not it's, this one goes a long time between printings. It can be hard to get access to. No, this is one that I don't know anybody locally that has a copy. I know that uh, I, I nearly got a chance to play it last year at MogulsCon. Friend of the podcast, Josh, was really a champion in getting out and playing it. And for whatever reason, it just never kind of pulled together, maybe because I didn't know anything about it at the time. And so I have not personally played it. I have not personally seen it. Nobody in my immediate sphere owns it. And so I just have never really had the opportunity to play it. I did, after you were on and talked about it last time, had somebody contact me and say, hey, I know where there's a copy for sale and uh, just never really moved on it. Probably should have. But uh, yeah, I keep hearing you talk about that and have never had a chance. It's a qualified recommendation. I've had it make adults say, let's just put this thing away. I'm feeling too bruised. Right. You've got to be in the right mood. You've got to be feeling reasonably robust and in the mood for being a bit of a swine and having people be a swine to you for a protracted period of time. I do have limited opportunities to play stuff like that. I do have mm. uh, I do have a number of, Care Bears is the wrong word, but I do have a number of people, like I'm never going to play this with my family, right? Sure. There's a few games like that. Like I'd love to play bus with my family and I don't think they're going to like that. A lot of games like that, even my normal game groups, too, have fallen really hard flat. And uh, so I have a group of gaming friends that would love it and most that wouldn't. Yeah. And it's one of those ones that you could argue maybe one copy in the groups more than enough. The one thing I would say, actually, before we move on, is because of that kind of long time between printings, it's not too hard to flip it. If it doesn't land, it's got a good reputation. It's mechanically sound. And if you like your board games to generate emotions and experiences and memorable moments, it does that. It really does that. Sure. Shall we move on to something more Euro-y? It's almost quintessentially Euro-y. That's unfair. What do you got at number 14, Craig? I've got Fresh Fish by Freeman Fries, published most recently by Rio Grande Games, uh, originally published in 1997. I'm being unfair to it, actually, because it's barely Euro-y at all. It's just by a European, so, you know not really that's not a euro is it it is a bidding game where you are looking to get your stalls as near to the vans for their respective goods as you can everybody will have a stall for each of the types of goods that are in the game i believe there's four types of goods and the scoring at the end of the game essentially is golf scoring you want to have 
the least distance between your stalls and the carts for the respective goods. So it's driven through auctions throughout the game where let's just say I flip a tile and it's got a fish stall on it. That's an opportunity for a fish stall. We'll do a closed fist bid and whoever bids the most for it will get to place it on one of the plots they reserved previously. So, because on your turn, you can either flip a tile and hope it's something to put up for auction or you can place a reservation on a plot. Say you win the auction, you can then place it down on your reservation. Hopefully it's close to the car. Other people are then sweating because there's only so many, you know, so many opportunities to place things in good plots. At the end of the game, we're going to sum up the distance of our stalls from their respective carts, take the money off because the money left in hand is obviously good and whoever has the lowest number wins the game. It's really simple in terms of the rule overhead. If you play the latest edition with the basic rules, it's really easy to play because it uses kind of area, majority, very simplified. When there's this many pieces of wood in the spot, you flip it over kind of thing. But the original version is where the game's at. I, I don't really want to describe it too much because I'll be honest, I've only played the version one of this game a couple of times, the original version, but apparently according to Luminary J.C. Lawrence, it's the best version of the game. In that version of the game, you have to keep watching the board state to make sure that there's a potential legal route for players to place their stalls. And if there isn't, I have to pre-place roads in to make sure that it can... That, uh, for a better term, a cart can access a potential stall. So it ends up being kind of this Schrodinger's cat kind of thing where, oh, 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 that's now, I've got to place roads here because otherwise the board state will become illegal. And for most people I play this with, I don't want to be the policeman of a board state where if it goes wrong, you might as well just tip the table and stick the whole thing in the bin. Yeah, that seems strange for sure. But I think it's where the most strategic version of that game lives. I just think I've played a few times with a table of committed players, all of whom are willing to watch the board state and share that cognitive load. And it's worked really well, but I'm ranking it number 14. So therefore it could probably be higher than 14 if I had a group that could play it that way without me doing the processing. Sure. But I'm ranking it 14 on the version two. The simplified version of it is still number 14 in my list. So you would say that if you had a group of experienced players that could do all of this stuff and make those decisions and run the better version of it, then it's possible the better version would be the definitive higher ranked version? Definitely, without a shadow of a doubt. But it's that whole kind of the game you can practically play versus the game you can actually play. And the game I can actually play is still fairly, it's still fairly deep. It's still fun. It's still, it still runs in about 40 minutes. It still it has auctions, which are you know blind blind auctions, which are fun. It has valuations. It's got opportunities for calamity, where suddenly someone's scoring ten points because they didn't get the right reservations, or they won a stall at the wrong time, or they got blocked out. It's a great game, and it took me far far too long to come to it. Is it currently available? I uh, it is in Europe. I can't speak for your region. I don't think it is in the U.S. I mean, a uh, a quick search on some you know mass market retailers online. Uh, not coming up with anything. So, although to be fair, Fresh Fish is a pretty generic search. Of course, it is available on Tabletop Simulator, but that is the version one version of this. The latest kind of simplified version of it is not available on Tabletop Simulator, but it's actually one of the lesser spotted games that works quite well on Tabletop Simulator in terms of there's not too many components. It's not too fiddly. There's not too much to track. It works quite well. So if you have a group of people that want to explore something like that, 
and are willing, I would say, to have throw away the first couple of games to learn in how to drive the engine, you'll have a good time. Excellent. Again, another one. You, you kind of get a little stripe here of games that I haven't played. And I promise once we're through this, uh, I, I have much more to talk about. But for all the reasons you talked about, this has been another one that's been on my radar. I just haven't had an opportunity to uh, physically play it. Right. Well, I guess there must be something. Oh, this is an unlucky, actually. Unlucky unlucky in 13. Another horrible experience that you'll thank <laughs> me for bringing up. And, and, and another one you have talked about in the past on the Gaming Moguls. I must say something about me that I like making people suffer, I think. Well, to be fair, it was an episode that was specifically about nastiest games. So I'll give you a pass that we sort of purposely drew that out of you. Sure. I'm going to say it's like that. I'm going to say it's because you drew it out of me that it's number 13 on the list as well. Um, (laughs) Sure. Vanuatu by Alain Epron, most recently published by Quind Games, uh, originally published in 2011. It's is a Euro game where you are entrepreneurs on the island of Vanuatu and you are going to be trying to get the most prestige over the course of circa 90 minutes by diving for treasure, fishing for fish, putting turtles in the sand of the beaches, um, having tourist huts, uh, well, one point, building market stalls actually, uh, and bringing tourists to the islands to spend money on your market stalls. It all sounds so pleasant, Craig. It does. It does. It does. Here's the rub. The phases, or the turns rather, are separated two phases. There's a planning phase where we commit action discs to the various types of actions we want to do. And we have a number of these discs. And then there is a resolution phase. Here's the thing. Unless you're the person who holds the majority count of discs on a given action spot, you can't perform that type of action. And when it comes to your turn, sorry, when it comes to your turn to operate in a round in this phase, you must take an action. If there are no actions you can take because you are not the majority on any of the spots, you may pick which one, which stack of discs you are going to throw away because you can't use them this round. It is absolutely possible to be blocked out of the majority of your actions in a turn if you plan poorly. If you try and uh, bite off more than you can chew and try and stake a claim on too many actions, you could end up effectively taking none of them. Oh, you wanted to fish? Yes, but I needed to move before I could fish. Ah, well, there's three people ahead of you who have more discs who are yet to move. Oh, well, I also wanted to, 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 do, to go for treasure. Yeah, do you need to move to do that? Yeah, I do. Oh, uh, uh, what about going to the island? It's just, it's just, there's this chain of things where just one bad series of actions, for want of a better term, and you can be dead in the water. It's it's lovely. And all I'll say is it's frustrating in a very different way to Tammany Hall. This just feels like everybody dicking everybody. Dick- I've heard yeah. this described that the game hates you. I feel it just feels like everybody's dicking everybody over. It never feels pointed in Vanuatu. It's kind of... You know, yeah, you're forced to hurt each other to a certain extent. Yeah. Whereas in, Ta- whereas in Tammany Hall, it feels very pointed. Does it in any way, because of the fact that it's making everybody do it every turn, does it still retain that element of kind of a personal attack that it feels like Tammany Hall would have? No, no, no I don't think so. I, I, not unless you're unfortunate where you just get, keep getting turned over by the same person each time. Maybe on the planning phase where someone keeps outbidding you on a stack. But it's, I don't feel like it's any worse than an auction. Because essentially that's what these things are, right? They're auctions for actions or auctions for priority on actions. So I put another one on to outbid you. You go, oh, you're going to make me put two there again, are you, Mark? Yeah, I am, Craig. 
oh, okay. But it's that kind of Euro niceness of it's 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 nasty, but within a constrained space. It's it's the right amount of nasty. It's all the other the other piece around it as well is that it's just clever. Like it's not mindlessly nasty. It's not like a take that game where someone pulls a card and they mess up the thing you've been building up for the last ten minutes. There's some nuance in this, I think. Yeah, and those games, even though they are nasty and even though they are painful, I, I tend to enjoy that kind of nastiness just because of the fact that it's it's deliberate and it's pers- it's purposeful. It's not, you know, random and punitive. And yeah, you're screwing somebody over by taking a move, but you're doing it because that legitimately helps your game. I mean, your brain operates on two levels when you observe a move like that, in my opinion, Mark. There's the, oh God, you've stuffed me up. But there's also the, oh, I appreciate the work that went into that. You know, that was sure. a good that was a good move. I see how you did that. That was clever. As opposed to sure. you got lucky. Yeah, that, those are the real frustrating, rage inducing games. When somebody just plain out plays you, even if it's, you know, remarkably bad for you, it's somehow more tolerable. And, you know, I would say that that is the case with a game like Bus, where there's, you know, not an awful lot of luck in the game and bad things happen to you, but they were well planned out and done deliberately for their own benefit. Definitely, definitely. Strangely, Bus didn't make this list, but I don't think I played it enough to be able to credibly put it in. But, oh no, that's a, that's a very minor spoiler. There's many games in the world, guys. You know Bus isn't in this one now. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's Vanuatu. Number 12, I actually just received as a Christmas present from a friend of the show, Johnny Mac. Uh, I'm relatively new to this game and have really fallen in love with it quickly, as has Jake. Yeah, it's a good one. I've I've played this for years and years and years. This was one of my earliest intros into the into the modern board gaming hobby, actually. It's Keyflower by Richard Brees and Sebastian Bleasdale, and published under the R and D Games Publisher. Originally released in 2012. I'm surprised it's above modern art because it's an auction game. So therefore, is this now the new king of auction games? I'm not sure. It is a Euro game where you are building little villages in something approaching a colonization type piece. I guess it's kind of got a very light colonization theme on it with boats that land. I mean, it's incredibly light. You could, you could all but ignore it. It's played over the course of four seasons, circa two hours, I guess. I mean, maybe you can play it quicker. There's definitely an element of more players equals more time with this. And each season, you are going to be bidding on tiles to add to your village from the central display of tiles. The strange thing about this is you're going to be bidding with what they call workers, but they're essentially just different colours of currency. Except they can also operate as workers, so maybe they are workers, I'm not sure. You can be bidding in the in the centre with workers. Start a game, you've got red workers, yellow workers, blue workers. And when the first person commits a bid to one of these tiles, they define the colour of currency that can be used to bid on the tile. Uh, the tiles are six-sided, and this game supports six players. Uh, the player who bid is defined by which side of the tile they place their workers. That's how you're all able to bid with the same colour currency. And if you're outbid, you can then move that cluster of workers to either support an existing bid or to create a new bid somewhere else, as long as it becomes a winning bid or part of a winning bid. The game starts getting a bit kind of chunkier and fiddlier when you, you've been bidding with blue workers, you get displaced because somebody pulled some blue workers from behind their screen you didn't expect them to have. And you realise there's nowhere for your blue workers to go because all the other hex uh, hex tiles have been defined as other colours that are not blue. Those workers you bid with, they're gone. But if you use the workers, the other because there's another function for them, you can run your existing village with the workers. 
And if you run the run your village with the workers to produce stuff to increase your victory points you're going to have, either directly or indirectly, then you get to keep the workers and they get to come back behind your screen. You get to use them again. The other weird thing is you can place your workers in other people's villages and use their village for your benefit, but then they get to keep the workers for the next round. It's a wonderful game. I, I, I can't effuse about it enough. I know Jake's fallen in love with it because I saw him um, talking about it in a private messaging group. Have you actually had a chance to play it yet, Mark, or have you just received it? I have played it once and uh, loved it. I found it very interesting and unique. It plays very differently than a lot of the other auction games because of the fact that engine building's the wrong word, but you're it's you're doing off. the auctions to, you know, to build up your points engine towards the end of the game and to support getting more workers and to get those pieces of the puzzle you need to get the winning combination at the end of the game. And I think that's what separates it from a pure auction game like Modern Art in that ultimately the um, the auction is a means to the end, not the end itself. Mm, definitely. I, I think I'll say one thing. It's, this is this game, in my opinion, is better without any of the expansions. 100% of the game lives in the core box. Sure. And that's the only version that I have is just the core version on that one. But you're, miss, you're missing out on nothing if you if you just stop there, in my opinion. Uh, it's a really good game in the core box. Other thing I'd like to say to you, Mark, about it is although it supports six players, I think it's probably better at four or five. Sure. You, know, you do you. And I think that's the quantity. I, I either played with four or five the one time I played it and thought it played, you know, absolutely delightfully. And yeah, it just something about the mechanisms felt different and fresh in a way that um, I, I, I struggle to compare it directly to any other game. Yeah. And it's nine years old. So there you go. I appreciate that I'm taking too long per item. So let's move on from my love letter to Keyflower. Sounds great. What's your number 11? Well. Just go and watch a shut up, sit down video, Mark. There's, we don't need to be here. Just, just go and <laughs> just go and watch Quinns talk about stuff. It's fine. He he, he does it better than me. He's British yeah, as well. I just you know? I watched that as well. Yeah. So <laughs> it's Hansa Teutonica by Andreas Stedin, uh, published by Argent Argentum Verlag in 2009. I've I don't know who the big box ones come out under because I already own it and all the maps. It's just a quintessential route building Euro where you slowly build up an engine by placing cubes and discs on a board but it's just so good it's just it's a very abstract euro that deserves far more attention than i think it ever really got until now i'm glad the big box editions come out to let people see more of it i'm very excited i just got the big box version of that myself and have have read the rules have not actually played it yet saw the Quinn's thing about it and have had many, many, many people in my gaming circle go on and on about how it's, you know, the perfect Euro, which is essentially what Quinn said. And I'm very excited to actually give that a go for myself. And, you know, the beauty of it is, is that you get it republished. You do a big box that includes all that stuff, which, by the way, isn't that big of a box. And it was actually rather inexpensive as, you know, kind of top tier Euros go with a lot of content in there. I mean, it was it was low thirty five dollars maybe here in the U.S., which is actually amazingly priced for what is in the box. Well, Mark, it was a euro from a simpler time for simpler people that didn't want anything but cubes and cylinders and beige art on a beige board with beige glue and beige paper. So I mean, it, <laughs> it, it is it, hella beige. It is it's hella beige, and but it you know what? It's you just push through that, push through that, and you'll see there's a great game in there. It's got that good move thing where you scratch, we talked about it a bit with Vanuatu, where you scratch your chin and go, 
hmm, that, yep, that's, that's given me a decision. And yes, I am going to pay to displace your cubes, even though I don't want to. And you knew I was going to before you place the cube, <laughs> you swine. Um, I remember when I was first taught this, my friend said to me, you'll be good at this because you'll uh, beep, beep, beep. And yeah, <laughs> acting like a beep, beep, beep throughout the uh, game initially is quite helpful. So um, uh, being obnoxious is handy with this. So games where you can be obnoxious to each other automatically make my top 20, apparently. Well, it, it's interactivity. It's not necessarily obnoxiousness, right? I mean, it's 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 games where you're rubbing up against the rest of humanity at the gaming table. And the game not only uh, creates that type of environment, it encourages it in order to do well in the game and to win. You need to rub up against other people and to slow their progress down and to get in their way and trip them and, you know, throw caltrops in their path and whatever else you need to do to stop their charge. And I agree with you. The games that have that as a core tenant of what is happening certainly migrate to the top of the list over games that are multiplayer solitaire. So you're safe in saying that this is not multiplayer solitaire? Not in any way, shape or form. And I'm a bit bruised because <laughs> the, implication, the implication here is, is that these games are interactive and I merely choose to be obnoxious. And you're, you're absolutely correct. The one thing I will say, and I'll be interested to ask, I appreciate it's a bit of an aside. I chased a few other games by Andreas steadying off the back of this. Let's, let's just talk about the one I've ever I played. It's set in China. You probably remember the name of it because you spoke Gugong. about it on your podcast. Gugong, thank you. Yeah, I just don't feel like he's hit the same. I think you'll like this. I don't know if it will fire Gugong for you because I believe you quite like Gugong, but Gugong didn't land for me in the way this did. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm willing to believe that uh, designers have different ideas and, you know, I don't know that I have to compare them directly. I think I can like both of them for different reasons. Mm. And uh, yeah, I've I've been a fan of Gugong. I understand it's a bit polarizing, but it's something that if I take a step back and look at a game that's been a hit every time it's come out with a variety of people, there's not been a lot of times that people have walked away going, eh, I didn't really enjoy that. It's been pretty popular every time we've played it. Oh, there you go. There's a reason every mogul has a different top 20 list. So right. there you go. Right. <laughs> I, no, to be fair, I don't believe Gugong was in my top 20 either, but it wasn't far off. It's it's a game I certainly enjoy. So the fact that I liked Gugong actually kind of pre-greased the skids for Hansa Teutonica, if you will. It's something that made me say, oh, I like this designer's work. And everybody else says this is a great game. So it was a no-brainer to acquire kind of unplayed and untested. So in 10 is a game that I'm barely going to talk about because it's been spoken about so much by other people. I'm hoping it's been spoken about by the moguls. Otherwise, I am unsubscribing from the podcast. It is Power Grid by Freeman Fries, published by Rio Grande Games, originally published in 2004. I presume you guys have played this. Oh, lots, yes. This this game was only barely missed by top 20, not just because there was lots of good games to pick from, but this is absolutely been a favorite of both jake's and mine for a long time and the other game that i was talking about where being first is a bad thing yes 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 yeah fine should have clicked should have clicked it's a, it's a tall it's a tall list <laughs> you, yeah you definitely do not want to be uh, si sticking your neck out out in the lead in power grid and the reason being is that you know every time around there's an auction for these different power plants if you're out in front you just are at a disadvantage according to everybody else. My trick with Power Grid, I would say, is if you're out in front, you want to be making sure you're a long way out in front. It's like a, it's like a fifteen hundred meter race. If you're gonna break for the line, mean it, like really yeah. mean it. Don't just like make a little nudge and let people ride on your shoulder with Power Grid. 
if you're going to be out in front and be at all that disadvantage, you want to be picking up handfuls of money and lining your pockets with it so you can outbid when necessary. It's a great game. You go last if you're in the lead? Is that what happens? I, I forget. You basically are in the worst position every time. So you're the first right. to have to auction, which means that you are oh, not yes, going to have yes, yes, the yes. better better power plants flopping for you. You get last access to the market. You get last access on the builds. We all power our plants at the same time, so that's simple play. I kind of relearned to love this. So I played it, obviously, coming into the hobby quite a lot. Didn't play it for ages because we played it so heavily and no one was interested in playing it. And then I replayed it again throughout 2018 and re-explored a load of maps. And it just reminded me just how direct and how pure and how darn simple it is in terms of rules overhead versus a lot of the bloated stuff I had been playing. Yet the decision space was so good versus my initial read of it like five years prior. It's not perfect. You can just have an unfortunate game when nothing lands for you. That's fine. But by and large, the most skilled player will win with this. Yet everybody will have a decent experience. Yeah, and the most skilled player will win quite handily, too. It's not even close because you can absolutely torpedo yourself. I mean, overbid a couple of times on bad power plants. Don't leave yourself enough money to buy the resources you need to power things. You know, not power enough stuff that hobbles your economic growth to the point where you start falling behind people. And that's a death spiral that it's really hard to pull your way back from. It does have a little bit of a catch up mechanism in that whole, you know, weight down the person in first place thing. But that's not going to be enough to pull you out of last place if you're really doing poorly in this game. This is a game. It's funny. We Jake and I both have a a weird blind spot from somewhere in the mid 2000s. And I don't know specific start and end dates in there, but there's a bunch of games in the mid 2000s when neither of us were, well, honestly, I was off playing Magic and Jake was off playing Warhammer 40K and neither of us were playing Euros. Mm -hmm. And during that period of time, a lot of those big name games that got played a lot during that period of time kind of got missed by us. So, you know, when we got back heavily into games later on, into, into Euro games, a lot of those games were kind of forgotten because other people had already gotten sick of them. You know, they played Power Grid a lot in the mid 2000s. And, you know, all of a sudden here comes me with a big smile on my face in 2015 going, hey, let's play Power Grid. And everybody's thinking, yeah, we already played. We're, we're kind of sick of it. We played it a lot a long time ago. Yep. So a lot of those games are actually are weirdly new to us. And we're sort of having the joy of discovering these classics. And I would put some kind of amazing games into that one. You know, Power Grid's in that bin. Key Flowers in that bin. I would put uh, a, even even like Agricola is in that bin. We're sort of new to those games and realizing why they've had the staying power that they've had. It's also, you talk about uh, players being fed up of playing them. It's part of the great um, thing about bringing new players into the hobby is the opportunity to, re to introduce them to stuff like this gives you an opportunity to play it through, you know, through fresh eyes yes. as opposed to being crushed by somebody that already knows it inside out. Well, and I think both Jake and I over the past couple of years have really refined our collection away from the new hotness and the new things that are coming out and the new releases that nobody will remember in a year. For these games that are still being remembered, loved, and played 25, you know, 20, 15, 10 years after their release. And building our collection around those games that are going to be absolutely timeless. Not saying there can't be new timeless games that are coming out, but that hasn't been my experience recently. Yep, uh, same boat. And uh, when, uh, when you see the whole list, well, so far we haven't had anything with uh, two 
as in 2020 in here at all. Looking down your list of games, Craig, the newest game in your collection hails from 2015. I know, it's worrying, isn't it? I seem like such a curmudgeon. Yeah. Craft Wagon is your newest game. I know, I'm, I'm, so, I'm such an awful curmudgeon. You, you, yeah, I know, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> let's move on, because I appreciate it. I don't want to keep your listeners too long. Next one, number nine, single digits, folks. We're nearly there. We're halfway there. Dominant Species by Chad Jensen, sadly gone, published by GMT in 2010. It may be the only worker placement game in this entire list. Perversely. Mm. I used to love that yeah, genre. I think you might be right. I used to love that genre, Mark. I, I, I've got tons and tons and tons of worker placement games in my house. This is the only one in my top 20 of general games. Uh, I, I probably, as awful as it sounds, I pinch my nose and walk away from worker placement games now. Where, But this, this does something special for me on a number of levels. My academic qualifications are actually in biology. I used to really enjoy evolution as some of my undergrad stuff. And when I was a kid, I liked dinosaurs. I mean, I sound like a generic person, don't I really? <laughs> likes biology, yep. likes dinosaurs. And this ticks those boxes. It's, it's built in that classic kind of two-phase worker placement thing where you have a planning phase where everybody's placing workers on the spots. And then you have the resolution phase where the spots resolve in order, kind of like a book, left to right, top to bottom. But what really defines this game is the brutality of the area control that interface is defining, where swathes of cubes can just disappear because yes. they starve, <laughs> or you're, you're fighting for majorities on particularly lucrative areas in terms of the points. You've got ice ages pouring out the middle, making part sections of the board more or less viable depending on what you're trying to do your species are adapting to get better stroke more successful in different biomes action cards to the side as part of a round setup random thing that you want to get priority on to make sure that you deploy them for your benefit or to protect you from getting stuffed over by them it's this game is great the only i guess my only criticism of it is it's hella long. Like you have to have a decent amount of time to play this and it's an intense long game. The signature things I think of when I think of dominant species, when you said worker placement game, I actually just stopped for a second and go, oh yeah, it is, isn't it? Mm. Mentally to me, it's an area control game. It's a very, very swingy area control game. You hate dudes on the map, but you're okay with dinosaurs <laughs> on the map. I don't get it. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I'm so joking. I'm joking. Sorry. I didn't mean to derail you there. I definitely have a complicated relationship with uh, with dominant species, to borrow a Facebook term. I have played this a number of times. I have had some very good plays. I've had some very bad plays of it. And I've had some very, very long plays of it. And ultimately, it's not something that our group tends to want to play much anymore. So I don't currently own a copy of it. But, um, you know, I've certainly had some good memories playing it. And yes, there is a lot to digest in here. And you have to manage and understand what upcoming swings are coming. You have to, you know, know what cards are coming and their potential impact because they will run you over and, yep. and gut you if you're not ready for them and if you haven't uh, prepared for that in advance. So that is something that uh, can be challenging unless you are aware and are used to that. I've seen new players of this game be knocked out a third of the way in. And I mean, literally knocked out. There's no point in you being here. Thanks for coming. It's right. And that's a third of the way into a two hour game. And two hours, if you're playing it a decent clip. Yeah. It's like two hours. <laughs> yeah, if you, you have to play three, a free player game of it, you Ooh. could get done in kind of two and a half hours ish, sure, maybe. Sure. Decent clip. And don't forget, you can play the abridged version as well. I think you can take some cards out and stuff. But 
here's the thing. It's my wife's favourite game. It's literally my wife's number one game. Interesting. But it's just it's just very hard to deploy because of the sheer amount of time it takes. And it's not, you know, 18xx has a rhythm, right? 18xx, you're playing for a long time, but you don't have to be on it the whole time. Right. With with this, the housekeeping in the middle and making sure the cubes are just so, and you, you know, make sure you've calculated the right things based on the foods, on the food stuff that's there versus the various adaptions for the species around the table. There's a lot of upkeep for such a long game. The big challenge there is that literally everything every single person does and every move affects you in some way. Mm. You know, if you're placing species out on the board or if you're placed, you know, wherever you're placing a worker could potentially have some negative impact on you if you don't manage where they put things. I'm thinking about what is it, the uh, the blight or whatever the mm, yep. things don't get selected and they fall down and then it rots things away. You have to be on top of everybody else's move because if you aren't ready to counter their move, it will affect you poorly. Sure. And it's even just a case of keeping the game honest as well. You know, you can mess up the calculations oh, yeah. if you're not if you're not scanning that correctly. I think this is probably a game that actually, if you forget the human interaction bit, if you could play this on a table with people and it was digital and the housekeeping was done for you, yeah. it, would, it would add two points <laughs> oh. to it. Oh, you just brought up a case of PTSD for me. I forgot the number one thing I hate about this game is the housekeeping. Yeah. Background. There's a calculation that you have to figure out who has dominance in every area. You can't tell that just by looking directly at the board. And it changes a lot. Like somebody moving one thing will cause that to completely shift. And it has to be completely recalculated every single time. And I played with a group that insisted on recalculating it every single time, you know, after every move, literally going through and checking everything. And it took forever. Sure. So the last couple of times I played it, I, I demanded a house rule that basically said that, hey, you are responsible for your own dominances. And if you do not take them, they don't count. So if you do something that causes you to take dominance, it's your responsibility to claim that. And if you don't claim it, you don't get it. That helped a lot. I think playing on a best efforts basis is, is, is perfectly reasonable. Yeah. We got it wrong, but there's so many times we're doing this calculation over the entire game. Hopefully it bounces out and that's just how it is. And yeah, it's a good idea to put the onus of it on the person who wants to claim dominance. That's a perfectly reasonable thing. And actually, the rule book actually says to do that in hindsight. I look back at it and it it basically said you can uh, claim dominance by whatever means necessary. So I, I thought of some very Animal Kingdom ways of trying to do that. It was ultimately voted down. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Nice. Um, <laughs> let's move on to something a bit simpler then. Something a bit more, a bit more easy to drive. Uh, you, know, it's all, it's, it's, <laughs> you, you have an odd definition of that, my friend. Yeah, it, it, you know, um, this is all but snap, really. It's Brass Lancashire by Martin Wallace. This might as well be a filler. It's just, yeah, it's a micro filler, really. Uh, published by Roxley Games, but originally published by, I believe, Eagle Griffin, Eagle Games in 2007. I don't know what I can say about this that hasn't already been said. It is, it is Martin Wallace's magnum opus, I think. By it being ranked lower than another Martin Wallace title in this list, I honestly think this is, when you look at this, it is a masterpiece. It casts such a long shadow that when I was recently putting together some coverage for the cost, this is what it continuously got compared to just continuously. Sure. It's a wonderful game. It's set in my home country of the United Kingdom. Over the course of a circa 90 minutes, you will be Industrial Revolution magnates trying to make the most victory points by the end of the game by building cotton mills, coal mines, steel mines, and ports, trying to ship your goods to faraway lands to essentially earn victory points. It's played over two phases. During the first phase, you'll be building canals 
uh, to move your stuff about and to sell your goods. Partway through, we have a reset and canals get filled with concrete, apparently, or whatever happened, I don't know. I did American studies as I covered. And we'll build train tracks. The train tracks are good because um, the cities will be more populous at the end, so they tend to be worth more points Yes, for building versus the canals because the canals are essentially connecting two one-horse towns together, and we can use that because that works both sides of the Atlantic. It's interesting because it's, is it a Euro? I mean, I had this debate with a friend once about is it even really a Euro? It's car-driven. It doesn't use many of the common tropes that we'd normally associate with Euros, like worker placement or pieces like that. It's it's very much economic. Is it a Euro? Or does it just happen to use the odd Euro term like victory point? I'm not sure. I mean, we could even have a debate about what a Euro is, yeah. but it's just such a wonderful game. That's, that It's tough to directly compare it to other games. Exactly. Exactly. It's so unique. This game to me is virtually perfect. Um, what What's your opinion on this versus uh, Brass Birmingham? Brass Birmingham, of course, rated higher on Board Game Geek. And uh, I, I personally picked Lancashire high over Birmingham, but by a whisper. What's your opinion on it? Yeah, it's Lancashire every day of the week. Although Birmingham appeared to have some you know, potential, oh, well, this might be more interesting because you can, um, you know, there'll be different flops for the different off-board demands. In reality, it, changed, it just took the focus away from what the other players were doing to a certain extent. You could kind of leave each other alone a bit. Not you, you, you wouldn't necessarily leave each other alone every game, but there was more opportunity to leave each other alone. Whereas in Lancashire, because the focus is largely cotton, there's a bit more nip and tuck around that. The competition and the focus just seems tighter. Yeah, I think it's a real uh, Agricola versus Caverna parallel there that both have their appeal and both have their, you know, interesting niche in the world, but one's tighter and nastier. The other one's a little wider open, a little sandboxier. And I, I think there's a very good parallel between the two. I think this design plays to nastiness a bit. It plays to that, darn it, you flipped, yep. yeah, you, you flipped my dock and I was hoping to use that for my two cotton mills, but I pushed my luck a bit too far and you did have the card to, well, yeah, whatever, you know, there's, there's a, we're going to be talking about this at length on a future podcast on the train rush, actually. It's quite right. It's in the, in the top 10. I think I may have even had this ranked higher than you. I, in, in my top 10 list, I had this as number number five, even. I'll tell you why. That's because you took out filler. And I suspect, <clears throat> I suspect, I've got one in here that I reckon you <clears throat> might have discounted or did, it might be in your top. We'll see. We'll see in a sec. We'll see in a second. I know. Uh, look, looking at the rest of your list, there, there's... Yeah, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that as we move forward yeah. on this one, but I don't know it's that much different, so. Okay. okay. All right, what's your number seven? Food Chain Magnates by Splotterspellen, uh, published 2015. The designers, hey, Those Dutch guys. Yeah, those Dutch guys, Jerome and Joris. Um, I won't try and do the surnames because I'm a terrible person. Also, they're famous enough without my help. So I played this before I played 18xx. And this was the first splotter uh, I played. I'm sure that's common for a lot of people because it is the most popular, uh, most purchased splotter ever, I think. And certainly the one of, you know, I say the last five years that's done the best. In fact, let's, let's be honest, this definitely made splotter's name for them, didn't it, in the wider board gaming audience. I've had some of my uh, medium weight Euro friends like ask for that for their birthday, only to have other people say, hold on. You may not like that the way you think you want it. And then they ended up trying it aside and going, ooh, yeah, that one's not for me. It's nasty. So, it's nasty. There's no yeah. catch up. It's one of the few. It's uh, the first game I played where 
you'd be 25 minutes in and the players and the game all turn around. They look at you and they say, thanks for coming. <laughs> you know, and uh, you you might as well leave now. And yeah, it's just nasty. And it's too nasty for some of my very intelligent friends. I'm going to reference you here, Tom. Um, you're a very smart guy, but doesn't like the brutality of Food Chain Magnate where the thing you're building up can just be slapped out of your hand because somebody else has decided to price their hamburgers more cheaply. So bad luck, you're not going to sell a single burger now. And yeah, you're, you're, you're out of it. It's really brutal playing it against players that have played it a lot or have a skill advantage over you or an experience advantage over you rather. But I think there are rewards in this game, like you know, rewards for powering through the horrible early plays. I guess my one tip for it would be try and play it with a bunch of, if you haven't played it before, try and play it with a bunch of people who haven't played it before. I don't think having an experienced oh, player at the table for your first game will leave yep. you with a very good impression. <laughs> yeah, you need to play this with a uh, like-skilled cohort for sure. The one time I played it, I sort of bounced off of it for a lot of those reasons. I was playing with Jake, and that was probably Jake's 50th play. Mm. I didn't have a prayer, and I also didn't really understand it. Like, I didn't, the map part, I, I couldn't see it, right? I couldn't mm. see sort of the heat map influence map that's that was being put together by there. I just, I couldn't make heads or tails out of it. And it was a pretty long play for me. If I was trying to be as fair to this as I could be, I would say if you have an experienced player who's willing to chuck an hour and a half, two hours away, or just sort of sit nearby and play something else, you could have someone moderate it. I think someone experienced moderating it, making sure that you're playing it correctly in terms of honoring the heat map and who wins the, you know, who wins the grabs for want of a better term and that you're operating the various types of advertisements correctly and that you're not accidentally training people who should be on the beach or whatever. Somewhat, an experienced player could act as a moderator. I wouldn't want them sure. playing in someone's first game. No. <laughs> I certainly can see the uh, the DNA of why it is so highly thought of by a number of Splatter fans. It's hard as well, man, because it's, it's so heavily played. So trying to find people in your group when you're already like a, you know, a group of avid gamers who haven't played it previously and you're trying to get up to speed, that's really hard. So I would say if it did leave a bad taste in the mouth for your first go, uh, Mark, <laughs> then try maybe try it again with a bunch of guys who don't know how to play it and you're the, you're the most experienced guy at the table because one game isn't necessarily, well, okay, it's an advantage, but it's not a shattering advantage. So Craig, I have to tell you, number six was high on my list. It was really, really really high on my list. Some might say it was number one on my list. It could have been number one on my list if you'd have asked me four months ago, five months ago. I think I was able to knock it down a bit because I managed to kind of take the mania factor out from having discovered a new wonderful thing. So in number six, it's Teach You. And Teach You is kind of a totem for all the ladder games. So Haggis, Chimera, and obviously Teach You. Uh, the design of Teach You specifically is Urs Hosteletter. And I'm sorry about that, Mark. I know you don't like bad German pronunciations. Uh, the copy I've got is by Abacus Spiel. I believe it's printed by Eagle Griffin Games in the States. And it was first released in 1991. It's a ladder game where you play out kind of pseudo poker hands, trying to outrank each other until somebody wins the hand and picks up the cards. And you want to clear your hand first so you can, can win the points, so you can claim the cards that are in front of you. But uh, the rub here is it's played in teams and try to make sure your partner does well as well is a big part of this. And I want to say now, I mean, you've obviously covered this very well as your number one, but it's that team play thing that makes it 
absolutely yes. magic. This is what elevates it above trick takers. I like trick takers. There's not a single trick taker in this, but all these ladder games that you play in teams are just a pure joy, an absolute pure joy. Well, and I think another big draw of this one is the infinite variability. Every single time you're just, you can't wait to see what you're going to get for the next hand and how am I going to play this out and what choices do I get to make to optimize this? The bid in, that just, that elevates it too, right, Mark? You know, that meta game of, yep. okay, he's, my partner's put in a bid, so do I support them? Or do I also put in a bid to kind of, okay, because I definitely think I've got a stronger hand and it's okay because it'll balance out my win of the bid or offset their loss of the bid. It's it's just so clever. I, I, I mean, I appreciate I'm just using very loose adjectives here, but go on, to, back to you, Mark. This is a game that the reason it was number one for me was just due to the fact that, like you talked about in, uh, you know, this year, my family has played so many hands of this because that's the game that we keep gravitating back to. We have a perfect foursome here. And so it's very low pressure for uh, us to pull out and play, in fact. You know, I had a little birthday dinner a few days ago and uh, the family said, hey, let's play Teach You. So, you know, after I got done having my birthday pie and dinner and so forth, we pulled out and played a few hands of Teach You. And uh, I was unceremoniously gutted by my kids. It's so Moorish as well. It's, it's one of those games where you think, OK, we'll just play it to fill some time. We'll just play a couple of hands because we're going to play the main game in a minute. And then you get to the end of that second hand and you look around the table and you go, Shall we just carry Let's on playing going. this? Shall we, shall we play a full <laughs> set? Yeah, yeah, go on. Shall we play another set after that? Yeah, it's too late to play anything else, isn't it, really? No, but we're going to play another set. It's so good. But I will say, it, if you'd have asked me six months ago, it'd been number one because I was playing it virtually every gaming session. But I think the fact that I haven't been able to play face-to-face gaming for the past four months or so has kind of let that mania bit die down a little. And I think I've ranked it correctly in my list for me. And it is very dependent on both having the correct group. Uh, Again, like Food Chain Magnet, it's dependent on playing with equally yoked people that are able to understand the conventions and make proper plays and proper strategic things. Otherwise, it's going to be a dead walkover for the people that are really good at it versus the people that aren't. Or you're going to really frustrate your partner. It does have a dependency on that. And I know that's something Jake has struggled with and that he rarely has the opportunity to play teach you with three other people that are good at teach you. I think the onboarding for it's simpler though, right? Like you can have a bad game of this and you go, do you know what? We already, we, we know who's won this set. Let's just reset the points back down to zero. Let's have a chat about what we've just done. Let's go again. And I think this is much more easy to digest and get good at, not great at, you know, you know I'm not saying you'll, you'll be phenomenal forever. Um, it's a phenomenal straight away, but you can get to a passable level of skill and teach you much more quickly than you can in food chain magnate, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. But, uh, you know, I certainly would say that there is a there's a pretty long tail uh, associated along with this. I've played a lot of hands of it and I, I still feel like I, there's more stones to overturn. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is a difficult one to master, I would say. Definitely. And I'm pleased it's in number six because deep games deserve to be high up the list. Excellent choice. I'm not sure if number five is deep or not, actually. I just think it's a whole heap of fun. And a whole heap of mean, depending on what you define fun as. Indeed. Yeah. It's The Estates by Klaus Zoch, published by Capstone Games in, well, it's published 2019, I think, but originally published by in 2007 under a different uh, publisher, Zoch Spieler, I believe. Now, it's an auction game. I've covered it on the podcast before, I believe, your podcast. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think I may have even introduced you guys to it. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. We are going to be real estate investors trying to have the best tower blocks by the end of the game. 
It is a closed economy bidding game where everything that goes on the landscape is controlled. You know, its position will be controlled by way of auction. And it's a you slice, I choose style auction where the auctioneer will put something up for auction. Everybody else will put a bid in. It's an escalating bid. And the auctioneer will choose either to pay that amount of money to have the bit and put it where they will, or to receive that amount of money to give it to the highest bidder. There's a lot of wild swings in this because the person who owns the tower blocks, person who has the highest floor, and there's some restrictions as to what blocks can go on top of whichever blocks. And as such, you can can claim whole towers worth tons of points in a single move. But there's also the possibility of scoring massive negative points as well. I was going to say, that can very quickly turn massively bad for you. It can. So the first time a colour is won, a colour of block is won, that will become a player's possession. There'll be that colour for the rest of the game. A player can be multiple colours. A player can be no colours. But at the end of the game, complete rows on the blueprint, for want of a better term, they will score positive points. The incomplete row will score negative points. There's ways of doubling the positive or negative points if the... uh, Mayor is put out on given lines. And as such, it's possible to have quite a lot of screwage in this game. Sometimes money's worth more to you because future auctions you want to have the control over. Sometimes you want this block right now because it's important to to get a roof on that tower before somebody steals the tower off you. There's a lot going on here, but the rules to drive it are, again, there's a theme here, surprisingly direct. You know, it can go horribly wrong for you quickly. So you're on one of those that you think is going to score highly positive for you. Somebody flips it negative by completing another one or negates the amount of points you have on top of it by putting a different thing and claiming it for themselves. There's few ways it can go right and so many ways it can go wrong. It's chaotic, right? It is chaotic, but in an intentional way. Like you can read the flop and try and plan stuff, but ultimately you do have to play a little bit round to round. I can't control what you put up for auction. There is absolutely a tactical nature of being able to read the board at that moment and take the best possible action that you can take, because the real variability in this is the players and their action and (laughs) their direct hostility towards you. Did this hit your top 20, Mark? I put this one at... I don't think it was in my top 20. Um, Fair enough. I'm scanning it. it I'm looking at Jake's list as well. Wow, I'm the weirdo here, aren't I? outrageous i can't speak to jake i'm not even finding it on my list right now which is oh there we go number 56 on my list which sounds horrible but remember i like an awful lot of games sure you know i just told you about how great union pacific is and i rated that at 62 (laughs) so glass road is one of my favorite games and i rated that at 60 anyway you can only fit just so many games in the top 20 the reason it scored as low as it did for me was access like this is not a game that my family enjoys at all You know, my son that likes being mean in games does, but the rest of the family doesn't. So if we're sitting at home playing with the family, it's not coming out. There's probably 54 other games that are going to come out before that. That would probably explain where it is for me. Yeah, there's an opacity to it. Like The first time you play, your mind's blown. It takes a number of times to start being able to traverse and navigate the game. And even when everybody knows what they're doing, sometimes it can feel arbitrary what happened to you at the end. But it's the journey is a bucket of fun for me, hence why it ranks so highly. Yep. The estates. I mean, that's one I don't know that you could play out. It's because of the fact it's so player variable that uh, every game is going to feel unique. Indeed. Speaking of games that are infinitely variable, 
that other Martin Wallace title that you talked about is clocking in at number four. It is, and it is my lowest ranked train game on this list. I think, oh, that's a lie. Cube Rails ranks lower than this. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. So it's Age of Steam, uh, most recently published by Eagle Griffin Games, originally published in 2002. Yeah, what hasn't been said about this again? It's a wonderful mashup, for want of a better term. Is it even a Euro? I think it's a Euro. Is it? Is it an economy game? I, I think it's an economy game. Is it a Cube Rails game? Again, it's one of those that probably sits in a lot of margins. Is it a Cube Rails game? I, 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 it's not really a Cube Rails game, is it? But it says so on BGG that it's a Cube Rails game. The beauty about Age of Steam <laughs> is the same for me as 18xx. Heck, is it pick up and deliver? <laughs> indeed, indeed. This is actually a lesser spot I pick up and deliver game I like. I hate pick up and deliver games. I pathologically hate the darn things. If you tell me something's a pick up and deliver game, I'll leave the room. It's that kind of thing where I'll go, I'm not going to inflict myself on your pick up and deliver game. Have you played Grand Trunk Journey? Not yet, no. Hmm. We've talked about this. I think a lot of times pick up and deliver is just plain lazy. It, it's lazy design. I don't think there's anything inherently bad about pick up deliver. I think that just it often is just a lazy thing to do. And therefore, it's that the game is bad and bad games tend to use pick up and deliver because it's lazy. Sure. And Grand Trunk Journey is a very, very good game that happens to be pick up and deliver. It's on my list of games to take a run at. Um, it's just been a bad year for trying new games and in throwing money at Spielworks for games that I'm not going to be able to play for a while. <laughs> right. If it feels like locking money in a box and hoping that you come back to it later. Age of Steam, essentially, right? It's a system game, isn't it? The variability yep. you can get off the different maps and is phenomenal. It's not it's the only trick. It's not, okay, there's tons of maps for this. Wow, the variability. It's the fact that the depth of play available, full stop, even if it was just the core maps, is really good. Oh, yeah. I mean, I played the first bunch of games that I ever played on this one, never getting out of the Rust Belt. It's only been very, very recently that I've started experiencing different maps. Mm. And it's nasty as well, right? Like, it's another nasty game. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. This is a uh, this is the one game that ab- actually scares me. It's funny, you know. I love playing it. It's very high on my list, as it is on Jake's. But every time I go into this game, I kind of, you know, I gotta cinch my belt up a couple notches. I gotta tighten the harness, and you know, I, I, I have to prepare myself mentally for what's going to be a beating. I've only just about found a level where I would consider myself to be average at this or above average. I was getting turned over at this game for nigh on three years, just absolutely getting duffed up. I found this harder to get competent at than 18xx. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it's so tight that there's so little room for error anywhere in this game that overbidding a dollar can sink you sometimes. It's so easy to overbid in those auctions and so easy to get caught up in auction mania and, oh, I'm going to win. And you go, ah, now I haven't got enough money to build the track I need. And oh, and next round's going to be a struggle. And uh, oh, oh, and bankruptcy <laughs> happens in this more often than it happens in 18xx, seemingly. Yeah. You know, it's, well, certainly with newer players, anyway, it's crazy how brutal the core system is trying to rip you backwards the whole time. It's lovely. Like, it, this is as close to a perfect train game that doesn't involve shares in a classic sense that you're going to get. Yeah, I think this was Jake's number one. This was my number four. I am in the same position as you did. So this is a game that uh, I don't I think I could play the rest of my life and never reach a true level of mastery at it. So what I'd say is just a just a bit of actionable for the listeners, I guess. Go and download the files for JC Lawrence's. I think the best map is the Denmark map, if I'm honest, but the Wales map is quite good. Those maps, they run quite long in terms of time spent because they're cognitively 
quite challenging. They're, they push the rules about as far away from Age of Steam as you can get while still calling it Age of Steam. But they are definitely worth a go and they're free. So print them out and print out at your local copy shop or do A4 and post raise them, whatever it takes. Right. Give them a punt. They are pretty much the, the edge of the rule system because that's the thing. Different designers take the Age of Steam rule set. Some of them do very mild tweaks and some of them distort it wildly. Like I say, tip for the top, try Denmark. Yeah, I think the last two I played were Pittsburgh and uh, the Bay Area one, I think. That one was crazy. The, was like, <laughs> the thing I would say, actually, Mark, for, for you specifically, make sure that you've played a, a fair whack of Age of Steam before you look at the J.C. Lawrence ones, because I think being competent at Age of Steam will let you appreciate what he's done to the system, if that makes sense. And that's not to call you incompetent. I just mean, I, I, don't, I, I wouldn't have appreciated them two years ago. I'm definitely incompetent in Age of Steam, so <laughs> that's enough. probably a great heads up. <laughs> no, so, so, Jake, when you listen to this later, it's a tip for you, really, mate. Um, Right. Uh, number three. Right. Number three. Number three. I saw this is on Jake's list. It's my favourite splotter of all time. It's Indonesia by Jerome and Joris, and obviously Splotter Spellen, released in 2005. It's a great auction game, for want of a better term, where you are trying to build industries on a map to deliver goods into cities with escalating demand as the game goes on, using transport networks that are defined by the players, transport networks taxing the delivery, for want of a better term, uh, the, the profit yeah, that a person delivering goods into cities will make. And it's, I mean, it's a longish game. It's, you know, you've played this, Mark, I presume? I love this game. Yeah, I have I have a very polarizing view of splatters. I, I either whitelist them or blacklist them, and <laughs> sure. this is on the whitelist for sure. I guess I guess my only critique of it is playing it with physical components and trying to track the capacity of boats used, which yes. boats are used during a delivery. The housekeeping on this—it's not dominant species levels of annoyance. You need to be on it. There is a level of housekeeping fiddly on this for sure. I've got a set of mini poker chips for this that are tiny that you can stack under the boats that help me a lot because mm. the money can be sure. scooped up afterwards. And you can also essentially, because they're $5 units, you can just use them as capacity counters as well. The only other critique of it is it runs a long time if you don't have the right player count. There's an optimal right. player count for this to get this running in a sensible amount of time. It's, it's a phenomenal game. And I just wish my wife liked it more. This is one of those ones that's on there kind of aspirationally because. If I could play it every week, I would, but realistically, I'd probably be able to play it about four times a year. And this is one that, for exactly that reason, I formerly owned. I owned a copy of it and traded it away rather stupidly for some other stuff, which is less memorable, and uh, really wish I had it back for kind of the same reason on the, I don't know, Jake owns a copy. I don't know when I'm ever going to play it without him, but now I look back at it and go, it's such a good game. I just want a copy anyway. It's a landmark game, right? You want to own it because there's a collector's item You've got respect for it as a design, I'm guessing. And you'd like the opportunity to play it. You might not play it without Jake very often, but if there was the perfect table and Jake didn't happen to be there, it would be great to have access to a copy. That's kind of my take on owning it, even though I know a few people who own it. The next copy I make will actually use the oversized uh, third edition, you know, the pieces that are extra jumbo size oh, by nice. accident. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm going to use those and I'm going to print out the map, re- the, the kind of modern map redraw onto mm-hmm. a very large sheet of neoprene probably and use it as like a con game and stuff like that to play sort of mega Indonesia. That'd be cool. 
for a couple reasons. Number one is I think that'd be just awfully cool. And secondly, the use of scriptina font on the original version just makes me pucker. <laughs> I, I know. It. Yeah, I agree with you. Oh. It's a flawed production in that sense, but yeah, you, you can overlook that. The game that. is so good, I'm even yeah. willing to overlook that. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, so I'm glad a splot is up there in my list. Well done, Pub Meeple. You're the best. Yep. Number two is going to make me look like a fool, Mark. It's going to make me look like a blooming fool. We all have our oddities. And you know what? I mean, own it. Are you surprised it's this? I'm going to say now before we uh, let the audience in on it. <sighs> I haven't played this. Oh, it's okay. Well, when I describe it, I think you may be surprised. <laughs> I've heard of it, of course, but I haven't actually played it. It is Time's Up Title Recall, designed by Michael Adams and Peter Sarret. Published by R&R Games, which means it's easier for you American fellas and ladies to pick up copies of. I've never even heard of this. I'm looking at it right now. I've I've definitely never seen this game. And it is 2008. Yeah, it was published. Yeah, it's a glorified nomicas, I believe you would call it, or monikers rather. It's essentially, okay, I'll describe the rules because I can do it very quickly. We're going to collectively build a deck of cards and we're going to know, is this four of us playing? We'll play in two teams. Okay. And the teams will take turns being the person giving the clues. But there's a pre-game where we are going to build a quarter of the deck. So we're going to know a quarter of the cards that go in there. Okay. And there'll be film titles, song titles, book titles, all popular culture stuff. Sure. And the teams will alternate having a clue giver and a guesser, kind of like um, code names for want of a better term, except it's, uh, you know, we alternate turn to turn as opposed to kind of someone doing all the clues. And in the first round, I have to describe the words on the you know, on the card without using the words on the card. Okay, and we're going to go through the deck once like that, and each team's going to try and claim as many cards as possible. Okay? okay? No passing. Second round, we're going to go through the deck again, except this time I may only use a single word. So if we're, let's say top first time round, I describe Top Gun to you, and I say, oh yeah, it's got two pilots, one's Maverick, one's Goose, and they... Do an invert and blah, blah, blah. And you go, oh, Craig, that's um, that's a naked gun. I'd go, no, it's not. But it's Top Gun, right? Second time mm-hmm. around, I might say, goose. And, you know, I'd hope that you'd remember it's Top Gun. But we also had nursery rhyme in there. Uh, oh, sure. Yeah. And you go, oh, it's that, it's that Mother Goose one, isn't it? No, it's not. It was Top Gun. I'll put that in the you didn't score pile. Because in the second round, if you guess wrong, you get one guess. And if you guess wrong, it goes in the bin. In the third round, that is entirely optional and people don't often play it. It's charades. And in the fourth round, it's statues. Now, we only play the first two rounds because the first two rounds are absolutely magical. Sure. And this gets played every week without fail. It is the closer we play every single week. And it's farcical and it's fun. And it it brings the actor out, say the actor, the, yeah, I'm going to say the actor, the wordsmith out in everybody and there's this thing where you're looking at the card and you think the other person's an idiot because they can't get it from your clues and they think you're an idiot because your clue's rubbish. But the magic with this one versus the other versions of Time's Up and other types of games like this, because it's popular culture and it's just movies and TV shows and all that stuff, if you don't get it, you don't feel legitimately stupid, right? Whereas the original, oh, sure. mm-hmm. whereas, whereas the original Time's Up was historical people, you know, it was like Abraham Lincoln and Napoleon and whatever. And if you didn't know who gave the Getty, Gettysburg address, kind of say the Gettysburg address, but there you go, then you might actually feel a bit stupid and come away from it a bit bruised because you didn't know that bit of history that your partner did. Okay. Whereas sure. if you don't know the star of Married with, uh, Married with Children, 
who cares? Like, <laughs> you'll take that L and you'll, you'll walk away from it without feeling too bad about yourself. The other thing that's clever about this, if that's, I mean, that's nice, that softens it, but the other thing that's clever about this is when you're on a team that's got his home skill, a la teach you style, and you've worked a, a relationship over the course of a few months and you can just hit those single words, pow, 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 it's just so slick. It really is. And uh, is, is there a factor of just being that you've played it that much that you learn the deck to a point where you don't... Oh, you yeah, know, yeah, it, to- totally. But it's okay oh, because okay. <laughs> it's totally, but there's, uh, I've, bought, I've got six decks and the decks are huge. Sure. And the decks, each card has two sides. It's got a yellow side and a blue side. So each deck, not only is there tons of cards in there, each card is, you know, it's a Schrodinger's card. It can be in either state. So we've played it enough now that, yes, we see repetition and we have some stock clues and stuff. But by the time you get there, it owes you absolutely nothing. Got it. Sure. So it's not like there's, you know, just 50 cards in there. And after playing it three or four times, you just you say one word and everybody instantly knows what card it is just because you played it so many times. Hundreds of two sided cards. Sure. And each game will contain, I think it's either 20 or 40 cards, 20 cards. Yeah. Each game will contain 20 cards. So you get the okay, gist. Yeah. That's a lot of play. It's a lot of play. You're not, you're not going to be hurting for this. And you know what? It's one of those ones as well. Where actually, you just put it down for a few months and come back to it. You'll forgotten half the cards anyway. So. And weirdly, for all of the positive things about my wife, she has an absolute blind spot for famous people. So this is one that she would never be able to play. <laughs> you, you say that, but you can describe films by what happens in them. You can describe books by... by you can do the old word association no thing. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I was surprised. Like <laughs> my, my, my wife knows absolutely nothing about a big swathe of stuff, like, like um, plays and whatnot, but we still get there. And also, because the, the deck's mixed, right, it could be, book, you know, there'll be some books in there, there'll be some movies, there'll be some TV shows. Like, like I say, you, you, can, you can work it and catch up on the, on the stuff she does know. Like, she's far better than me on American TV. Far, far, far <laughs> better. I'm such a dunce <laughs> no. on that stuff, right? No, I bet you know more American TV than she does. No, 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 no. Sorry, my my wife's better than me on American oh, TV. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Got it, got it yeah, got it. I'm not making any commentary on your wife, Mark. I I trust you when you say that she doesn't know TV. I, I think that's probably a virtue. Number one will be no surprise to anybody, and I'm sorry to finish on an anticlimax. If it's any help, it is the king of subgenres, in my opinion. It's 18xx. We'll attribute the designer to Francis Tresham as uh, designed 1829, which was released in 1974. Um, obviously, it's been built on since then by lots of people, including Francis himself. And yeah, it's uh, I, I didn't put this, I didn't break this out individually, Mark, because the top 20 would have been 50% 18xx. <laughs> and I'm not sure that yeah. would have interested anybody, even me. So uh, yeah, 18xx. Somebody should do a podcast on that. Yeah, they should. They should do lists as well. But um, yeah, they, they, they talk about how they don't like lists, so maybe they shouldn't. Yeah, yeah I mean, look, I mean, this, what can I say here that Jake and yourself haven't already said, right? There's, there's the interaction, there's the, there's the control, there's the perfect information, the play being entirely above the table and being able to, you know, as in it's what the players do as opposed to what the game does to the players. There's the, I don't want to say infinite, but the effectively infinite depth. I'll never, I'll never master it in my lifetime. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And it's, like I say, I've, I now have got to the stage where I went through this exercise for Pub Meeple and I looked at my collection and I'm now looking to sell half my collection from the early half of me getting to this hobby when I was just buying indiscriminately. But the stuff that isn't going is the 18xx games. 
we've been criticized by some of the other people in our game group about, well, they can't all be good. And for sure they are not <laughs> great. You know, we, we absolutely gravitate towards the good ones, but the problem is there's 150, 18 XX titles. And so even if you only, you know, even if only 20% of those are good, you've still got a shelf with 30 really awesome 18 XX games on there. And uh, mm. so, you know, yeah, they're not all good, but even if you just pick the great ones, you've still got a pretty large collection of 18 XXs. There's also an imp- thing as well. I'm not sure the impression is true anymore, but I certainly keep them, whether they're good or bad, on the basis that I know that there's a potential of them being very hard to pick up again. For sure. Whereas other, you know, normal modern board games are much more widely printed. You know, you're talking tens of thousands of units as opposed to a thousand units. So I'm loath to get rid of them on the basis that maybe I just missed something in it. Or maybe there's a good part of it that I want to examine. Even if the whole game, if the game swallowed whole isn't great, there's an aspect to it that I want to explore. Uh, Definitely the case. Um, I I think we're kind of coming out of that era somewhat because of 18xx is having its day in the sun right now. That a lot of titles that seem like grail games or would never be reprinted or super hard are suddenly finding their way back into print to it. I mean, 1860 most recently, um, you know, 1880 just off the horizon. And, you know, there's some of those Grail 18XXs that are actually looking to become more available. Yeah, I think the ones that are more universally recognized as good, and by good I mean decent level of depth, but, you know, easy enough to consume as well, they are going to be picked up, aren't they? They're either There's a license yep. under Scott or there'll be a license under Joshua Grand Trunk. And that's a positive thing, that the things that are broad appeal and are recognized to have quality along at least some axes will be available for everybody to pick up. Now, again, you know, look at the, uh, the all-board games model, we're still only talking a few thousand units, right? We're, we're not talking tens of thousands, and we're talking a direct order model. So if you're not living in North America, you still have to make some effort to hustle to pick these things up. Yep. But, it's, yep. but it is definitely a darn sight better than it used to be. Because of the, the runtime of these games and the amount of intellectual investment you have to put in to get the most out of them, I'm never convinced they're going to get mass appeal beyond a few titles. But that's okay. It's good, for, it's good that people make weird games for weird people. Yeah, and the people that are into those weird games tend to be very passionate and very loyal to them as well. So that certainly, just through that group of that doesn't grow very much, supports the model pretty well. Mm. That's not to say, and just to be absolutely clear, we hope we get a lot more players. It benefits everybody, right? It benefits everybody to have more groups to play with. It's just the, the one thing that you can't put into people's lives is a four-hour time slot. Right, right, for sure. So from a point of view of, okay, I'm, I've got an evening down the board game club and I've got a couple of hours to play, you're not going to be an 18xx player very easily without making some sacrifices in your life. And you might not be able to make those sacrifices. And I guess that's the one criticism I've got for the genre, right? is there are not that many games that play into the normal person amount of time. Yeah, I mean, a short game is the same length of time as a long Euro. Indeed. And I guess that's just, it's kind of a bit a bit like moaning about Les Miserables being, you know, that's a bit of a downer, isn't it, watching that? But if you, you can't make Les Miserables a jolly, happy thing without changing what the artist intended. And I think with 18xx, these games need that long to play out and still, you know, still be a worthy 18xx experience to a certain extent. And maybe that's a bit of a, maybe that's a bit of an elitist view. I'm not sure, but it's not meant to be. 
So I'm going to be a bit cheap now, Mark, and just say that I've probably said so much about 18xx on my own podcast that I don't care to repeat it here. Just, just, just go to my website. That's what you should do. And then you'll understand why I think it's number one. While you're at it, subscribe to their podcast and check out some of their episodes because each one of them is love letters to every specific title that they talk about. Unless I hate it, Mark, in which case it's a hate letter, but let's not go into that. You certainly had a couple that you weren't as fond of, but very briefly, Craig, what games were close but no cigar on this list that were just off the bottom of the list that in a different world might have made it? Okay, that's that's a good question. So the cost nearly made it, nearly made top 20, but I had to... Uh, I'm, I feel like I'm hitting the limits of what I want to look at that for now. And yeah, it... It's that kind of trying to wash the mania off it and go, okay, am I just enjoying this right now, or is this an eternal love? And I just, I just couldn't call that. I really couldn't. Blood Rage was on there because I love a drafter. I quite like Eric Lang designs, as evidenced by uh, 40k Conquest. Mm-hmm. And unlike you, I'm actually okay with dudes on the map in in the round as long as there's an intelligent kind of system underneath it, like Inish or Blood Rage. I think the only reason it wasn't in there was it's. It's one of those ones that if you build up deck knowledge, you'll crush people and it's very hard to get on board against players who know it. But unlike something like Food Chain Magnate, where the information's on the table and it's open information, you've just got to get better with Blood Rage because it's a closed hand drafter. It's really hard to guide players through how to get better. You can't do the open table chat. Also in there was Shogun, which is a second edition essentially of a game called Wallenstein uh, by Queen Games. It's got a cube tower that you chuck cubes into when you have a fight. And even if you lose the fight, some of your cubes might be in there for future fights. It's cubes on the map, which doesn't make it dudes on the map, but that's okay. <laughs> yep, yep. And I'll, I'll, I'll close it out with a family favorite by Days of Wonder, Five Tribes. I'm going to ask you if you've played Five Tribes actually, Mark, because this is one of those ones where I think you might not have been playing board games or maybe it just passed your radar because you were more into fiddlier stuff maybe. Five Tribes is one of the first games I played and I'm not surprised it didn't make my top 20 because I've probably outgrown it a little bit. But have you played it? I have. I really like this game. I do have challenges play it because it is a bit old news for a lot of people. So mm. I never run into people that are excited to just whip out and play five tribes. But yes, it's a game I, I really enjoy. I do have to be a bit careful on who I play it with, though, because it is something that brings out the worst in the AP prone player. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was just going to say, you've, you've saved me saying it. Yep. It's also actually it's one of the few games designed for more than two players that the two-player adaption for it is probably better than any other count. It's really good two players. Interesting. I've never played it two players. I I always think it's going to work at five for some reason. It hasn't. Exp- oh no! Do you? There's a fifth player. <laughs> there's a fifth player expansion, but no, no. <laughs> Just far too much crunch at five. I think. Craig, that is an awesome list, and thank you so much for uh, going through and running that through. So as we have you back on again in the uh, near future, everybody will know where your biases are. Indeed, indeed. And I apologize to Mark in advance for a very long editing session. (laughs) I think it certainly was a lot of fun to listen to, and hope you enjoyed. Hope you stuck on for the whole journey, and uh, thank you so much for coming on again, Craig. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. Hey, everybody. For the Gaming Moguls, I'm Mark. And I'm Craig. Good night, everybody. Cheerio. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. 
Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at GamingMoguls. Or reach us via email, jake at GamingMoguls.com or mark at GamingMoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.